Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is a one-part solo episode on modern political apocalypticism, which is to say, belief systems that believe that the total political, social, economic order is going to come to an end very soon, and something quite different is going to replace it. I focus here on revolutionary socialism in the modern world, um, but I suspect my argument is applicable to a number of different things. I've been working on this episode for quite a while, and it's a requested one. I often do polls on Twitter of what solo episodes you'd like to see from a list of ideas I've had, and this one consistently wins. So I wasn't ignoring that, it's just taken quite a while to put together. There was a lot of research in this one, and um, it's quite a long episode, but it's all one argument, so I thought I'd just make it um, one long one. As always, if you appreciate this type of work, please do consider supporting on Patreon. None of the costs associated with the show um, are covered by commercial advertisements, anything like that. So it's all just the support of listeners, for which I am very grateful. Also, um, my book, What is Freedom? Conversations with Historians, Philosophers and Activists, will be out in November. So that's coming up pretty soon. So if you're interested in that, why not head on over and pre-order one? Do that on Amazon, any book supplier. You can also do uh, pre-order directly from Oxford University Press. And I think you can read a sample of it on uh, the Amazon page if you want to check that out. Um, apart from that, let's get straight to it. I'm excited to bring you this episode. It may prove to be controversial. I argue a reasonably radical thesis quite aggressively. Um, so if you have comments, feedback, thought on this, I would absolutely love to hear what people make of it. It's a bit different to the analysis I've done on other solo episodes. So let me know what you think. All right. Let's get straight to it. This is Political Apocalypticism. Reading his Bible, he became convinced that extrapolating from certain dates in it, he had deduced the date at which the affairs of our present state would be wound up. Miller was a former army lieutenant. Having served in the War of 1812, he was present for some of the most dangerous and difficult parts of the fighting, but escaped it completely unharmed and afterwards came to contemplate death and what awaits us on the other side, quite carefully, quite obsessively even. 
he was a deist at that time and proclaimed that publicly, but began to explore returning to his childhood Baptist faith. One day in church, he had a very dramatic conversion experience, finding himself suddenly impressed by the immediacy, the presence, and the character of the Saviour. He accepted it and started to profess a much more direct and immediate form of Christianity. In an attempt to reconcile this newfound conversion with his previous deism, as well as the somewhat challenging questions of his deist friends, he began to read the Bible carefully, line by line, going through it all so that he could rationally defend every last word of it. And in doing so, became convinced he had found a date for the end of the world. The second coming. The purification of the earth by fire. The destruction of the non-believers, the salvation of the believers, and the start of eschatological time. The calculation is actually quite simple. Starting with Daniel 8.14, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. End quote. Miller assumed that the cleansing of the sanctuary represented the end of our current order of things, and that the 2,000 days would start in 457 BC with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem by Artaxerxes of Persia. That, of course, would put the date of the end of the world almost two and a half thousand years in the past, which doesn't quite work. So Miller made the move, and others, like others had before him, that the word day in that sentence actually represented a calendar year and not a 24-hour day period. So, then it was simply a matter of arithmetic. 2300 years after the rebuilding of the temple put the date of the end of the world at the disconcertingly soon 1843. Couple of dozen years in the future for Miller. Now, he began to share this with his friends and was surprised by their reaction. They were not horrified. They were not anxious. They were not ecstatic. They were a little bemused. He recounted shock at just how lightly they were taking it. They seemed not really to care. And however much he went through line by line, rigorously defending every step of his argument, they just couldn't quite shake the feeling, that though they certainly believed in the Bible as true and prophetic, that Miller must have got his dates mixed up somewhere, even if they couldn't say exactly where. Miller himself, though, became more and more convinced. Eventually, in 1831, he began publicly lecturing on his views, and in 1832, 
um, started submitting articles to newspapers about them. The response from the public was equally interesting. Miller wrote, quote, I began to be flooded with letters of inquiry respecting my views, and visitors flocked to converse with me on the subject. End quote. Apparently many people had questions, many people were fascinated by this, and the movement grew and grew and grew. Estimates vary. Um, some people say this, this um, religious movement gained thousands, some people say tens of thousands of followers over the coming two decades. Then, of course, well, I assume you, you can guess what happened next. What happened next is an event known in American religious history as the Great Disappointment. Namely, that 1843 passed, and the world did not end. Now, what's interesting, and what a great deal of work in sort of religious history and the history of various religious awakenings and revivals in America, is that the movement Miller started didn't die out with the Great Disappointment. It continued. Indeed, it's an origin point for many of the largest religious denominations in America today. For instance, the Advent Christian Church or the Seven-Day Adventist Church, uh, both those denominations have a direct connection with the Millerites and the Great Disappointment. And, as you can imagine, this has been a question that's really occupied scholars of religion, is how did the movement not only survive, but grow and flourish? I mean, there's 19 million Seventh-day Adventists in America today. Um, given the failure or apparent failure of its central prophecy. And there's a huge amount that you can read on that, of which I'm certainly not qualified to, to summarise. I actually want to focus on something different, though. A lot of ink has been spilled on why Millerism in some form persisted through the Great Disappointment. I want to ask, why did it catch on in the first place? It's an amazing story, isn't it? By some estimates, Miller had recruited half a million people to this cause. Other estimates are much, much more sober, placing it in, like I say, thousands, tens of thousands. But it, it, it was a lot. And it had to start somewhere, right? And you'll recall the first reactions were pretty sceptical. I mean, imagine a friend of yours becomes convinced that they know when the world is going to end, or when the second coming of Christ is, or even um, that they've accurately deduced the date of a, of a political apocalypse. Something, yeah, we might think of the failures of the predictions in orthodox Marxism, or something like that. If someone came along with a new Marxist prophecy, shall we say, we would probably be inclined to treat that quite sceptically. 
And I think we'd have that gut reaction before we heard their reasons. And even if their reasons, you know, they, they really could take you through the X, Y, and Z, I think we'd retain that scepticism. And yet many people didn't. Many people heard it and were like, yes, that makes sense. And they, they, they had that reaction again before they'd even absorbed the arguments. Recall, people wrote to Miller saying, I want to know more. How do you know this? Which, which bits of scripture are you drawing on here? In other words, they knew it made sense that the world was coming to an end before they'd had it explained to them why. And isn't that fascinating? In other words, there's some people, probably a majority of people, I would assume, then and now, who react to the news of the imminent eschaton. Eschaton is a word, by the way, um, nice little word you can pick up from, uh, you know, podcasts and uh, talks and so on. Use it every now and again to just sound smart, whatever. It just means the end, the end, the end times. Eschatology um, is sort of the theory a particular religion has of the end. Um, but yeah, most people then and now have your immediate gut reaction is skeptical. But for some people, your immediate gut reaction is that sounds right. That sounds like that guy's on to something. And I mention religion as an analogue because I think a lot of you will think, well, you know, but that probably wouldn't be true today, or if it was true today that someone came along with one, a new prophecy, um, the, the only people who would have the yes, that sounds right reaction would be people who were already pretty deep into biblical literalism. And yet, and yet, purely anecdotally, amongst the people I know, amongst the sort of activist groups I've worked in, amongst, like, just what I read on social media and what people post, I realise that's not a brilliant data set, but there it is. I'd say in my adult lifetime, there's been two distinct waves of political apocalypticism. Not religious, in terms of, there's no overtly supernatural component. And they're not drawing their apocalypticism from any religious tradition. The, the end doesn't involve Jesus, or any other religious figure for that matter, say. Nonetheless, what is being imagined is far more total than simply a change of government, or, you know, even a, a change in, like, social norms. W what is being imagined is the total collapse of the current political, economic, and social order of things, it's variously represented as neoliberalism or capitalism or fascism even, and something radically new and, in some sense, non-contiguous following on from it. Um, and a real belief that this is imminent, that we are in the end times, the, the political end times, perhaps, not the religious end times, but a real feeling of its imminence. 
And I'd say that in my adult lifetime, the two big hinge periods were sort of the aftermath of the 08 crash. And this rhetoric was quite common with groups like Occupy, which I knew quite a few people in. Um, but just sort of generally in the sort of proto-socialist left in America, there was a sense of imminence. A lot of people talked about this being, about Occupy being, the start of the end of things, or the first act of the new world that was to come. And then the other was 2016. Um, around the Trump election, a lot of people saw, both before and after his election, that this would be some sort of decisive breaking of the system. Um, you sort of got this, um, it gets sometimes called accelerationism, um, which is a term... I was going to say no one really self-identifies with it. There are some people who self-identify as accelerationists, but essentially it's like things have to get worse before they can get better, in that the general idea is something like this. You know, we are in the sort of closing acts of this decaying, rotten, aging, capitalist sort of superstructure. It's it's run its course, it's done what it can do, and what it sort of needs is a final blow to finish it off. And if we get not just sort of quasi-fascism, the fascism smoothed over and prettied up of neoliberalism, but some real, you know, blood and soil fascism going on, then people will throw off this decaying structure that's trapped them. We will level all political and social institutions and start again on the basis of cooperation and harmony. Now, with both of those, which I admittedly rather briefly sketched, although I tried to do so in a way that wasn't like poking fun at them. I'm not doing any of this analysis to ridicule apocalyptic beliefs. Um, I think you'll, you'll sort of have one or two reactions to them, and I think people at the time <laughs> sort of had one or two, one of two reactions of them. You could be Miller's friends who were like, yeah, that just doesn't sound quite right, buddy. Like, even if you haven't thought through every step of the accelerationist argument. I think a lot of people just have a sense that um, this, just, this just feels a little far-fetched, right? But a lot of people didn't have that reaction. A lot of people had the reaction of, that makes sense. I can totally see that. And I just want to posit, not as established fact, but just as just as a starting point from which to work, I want to posit that people's reaction, whether they find apocalypticism compelling or not, occurs 
prior to them hearing the arguments for it. It's not in the case of Miller that, you know, people can follow every last one of his his steps to deduce that it, the world's going to end in 1843 or 1844, um, that it just feels right to people. Or conversely, it feels ridiculous to people. The same thing, I think, is true with political apocalypticism. I don't think people read all of Marx. I mean, this does happen, it does happen sometimes, but I think it's the exception, not the norm. I don't think people read all of Marx and sort of, like, almost in spite of themselves, become convinced by it. Like I say, that will happen sometimes. I think the norm is people tangentially encounter something like Marx. They sort of hear about this theory that says capitalists are the diggers of their own graves, or the, 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 the contradictions in the system make imminent its, its collapse, or something like that. And they think, that sounds right. I want to learn more about that. And in learning more, they come to be able to offer a sort of um, step-by-step defense of that belief. But that step-by-step defense comes after the initial impulse to say, yeah, that makes sense. Or that feels right to me. And I think if you're introspectively honest with yourself, most of the beliefs you come to, you come to like that. You sort of know, like when you hear political arguments, even if you don't know like every detail of them, you sort of know who's onto something and who, who's barking up the wrong tree. Usually, most of us do. I certainly do, right? And so, the question I want to ask in this episode is why, why in this specific case, which is political apocalypticism. And I'm going to focus on a very specific type of political apocalypticism, because just as there are many different types of religious apocalypticism, there are many different types of political apocalypticism. It doesn't usually get called that, but I think it's a very similar thing, actually. And I think... As I go th- through this, I'm going to make the argument that it works in similar ways. But there's lots of different political predictions of sort of the total and imminent collapse of the current structures, right? Um, I'm going to focus just on this sort of socialist stroke communist political apocalypticism that sees the end of capitalism as imminent. And just sort of ask why. Not why do you think it's imminent exactly, but why do some people buy into that and some don't? Why does that feel right to some people and just feel wild and implausible to others? What's different about someone that they would go, yeah, that makes sense? Or conversely, and so not to put too much of a load, loaded question in advance, what's different about people who would just be immediately dismissive of it? Jacob Levy, um, former podcast guest, um, often asks, why do people say late-stage capitalism? You don't know where the world economy is going to be 10 years from now, much less 100. 
Isn't it, he asks, just as likely that this is early-stage capitalism? That there's, that, that there's many eras of, of future capitalist development ahead of us? Whether or not that's a good or a bad thing, isn't that equally plausible? In many ways, much more plausible than that the, we're, we're right at the end of it? Well, that's a fine point. We don't know the future. I don't think history has a direction, um, as some Whiggish liberals would have it. I don't think it has an underlying set of norms, as some conservatives would have it. I think there's trends and forces, but they're very difficult to deduce and describe. So yeah, yeah, as a, on an intellectual matter, I can sort of see that, that that point has merit. We just don't know what's coming. But I think for a lot of people, the idea there'll be another few hundred years of capitalism, that, that sort of feels right. But for some people, the idea that the end is nigh, as it were, that really it's sort of a miracle that the system has lasted this long, that just sort of feels right. And in some cases, I think he's not missing the point. It's perfectly, perfectly valid question to ask why. What are your reasons for this? And then, then like, assess the reasons. I'm not even going to assess the reasons. I'm not asking in this, this episode, are politically apocalyptic views, or religiously apocalyptic views for that matter, literally true, I, are these apocalypses actually coming? I'm asking why these visions are so compelling to some people and not at all to other people. And I think almost that's the question you want to answer first. And I think it's a question that gets circled. There's a huge amount of literature on, like, protest movements and social movements and stuff like that that really circles this question a lot in sort of political science and sociology and I think generally gets it pretty wrong or at least the stuff I've read picks up on part of the answer but then really misses the rest of it. So let's look at something else and let's look at something else that doesn't always get brought into conversations about political science and, you know, modern far-left social movements. And let's look at how apocalyptic beliefs spread in religion. Now, I gave you the case of the Millerites. But in many ways, your sort of explanation of that has less work to do because it's occurring in a world in which belief in an apocalyptic religion or a religion with apocalyptic elements is mainstream. It's, it's the dominant view in society, which is to say the majority of people in that world at the time as you know well as today's america actually are christians and while different strains of christianity emphasize apocalypticism to very different degrees for some christians it's very important for other christians it's not important at all the scriptures of christianity do nonetheless have apocalyptic elements within them. So there's always that resource to draw on, right? So in many ways, you can say as long as... 
these texts are held in very high esteem by a society, you're always going to be having people sort of rediscover those elements within them. But what about when those texts weren't mainstream? What about when those texts were making their way in the world, so to speak? It's easy to see how someone might find apocalypticism in the Bible once they've already accepted the Bible as the literal or inspired word of God. But why did people accept these texts to begin with, or the message that these texts were spreading? And when we look at that, one of the things you'll find, and I'm going to argue, is that it was an apocalyptic message that they bought into. So, so let's take a look at that, right? Let's take a look at who were the first converts to Christianity, or what we now call Christianity. Who were the first converts? What type of people were they? And what about this message was attractive to them? And in looking at that, maybe we'll get a different perspective on why people today find political apocalypticism attractive or not. So let's go all the way back, because it might seem as though who were the first converts to Christianity, who were the first people to accept the message that this Jew who had been crucified was coming back and his return would presage the end of the world, that might seem like a question so far back in the mists of time as to be utterly lost to myth and speculation. A bit like asking for, you know, who King Arthur was or something like that. And King Arthur actually, if he existed, was later in history than Jesus. But no, we have pretty good primary sources from eyewitnesses on this process that give us a huge amount of detail on who these people were and why they found the religion attractive. So Christianity only really got going after Jesus' death. Most people think the number of followers of Jesus at the time of his death was small, or most historians do, or maybe even only in the dozens, something like that. But it spread rapidly in the years afterwards. And we have primary sources um, from about 20 years afterwards, as the first Christian communities are beginning to come into existence in places outside the Jewish diaspora. Now, we don't usually think about these primary sources as such, because another use of these documents is they are scripture for one of the world's major religions, but nonetheless you can read them in that way. So just a note about the chronology of the New Testament. The order, if you have a Bible in front of you, the order those, the the books of the New Testament appear in, is not the order in which they were written. Um, Probably the order in which they appear is more an ordering by popularity than anything else. Like, apparently, well, this is what professional historians think, Matthew was, the Gospel of Matthew was the most popular 
um, document in early Christianity, and so that kind of always ended up being placed first, but it wasn't the first written. Matthew, again, by the consensus of historians, was maybe written in about the year 80, about 50 years after Jesus' birth, and probably not by someone called Matthew. That name was attributed later. Um, the other Gospels, uh, Mark was the earliest, that was around 70. John was a bit later, maybe around 90. Luke, maybe somewhere in the middle with Matthew. So these are a generation or so afterwards. Then you've got your epistles, the letters. Some of these are early, way before the Gospels. That's the authentic letters of Paul. The letters that generally people think were actually written by Paul who was a very early convert to Christianity. He didn't know the historic, he didn't know Jesus, but he converted maybe only a few years um, after Jesus' death in quite a dramatic way, and then became, I guess, what we would think of as a missionary, going and converting other people to this new form of Judaism, as it would have at the time been seen. Then some of the other epistles um, were written later still, after the Gospels. Um, and what the epistles are is Paul, this convert now converting other people, writing to those converts, um, sometimes quite soon after their conversion. And so you can read these almost just like, like I say, the, the, probably the primary way these texts are used is as scripture. Um, I'm just not, that's just not what I'm doing here. So I'm not on this occasion concerned to attack religion. Um, it's just a different way of reading the text. You can read this as, you know, something divinely inspired. I'm here almost just reading it like an organizing document. Um, I'm reading this as like, almost like, uh, you know, a lot of Paul reads to me sometimes, like a sort of internal email that you might get in some sort of lefty organising space. That's going to sound odd, but there's a lot of Paul that really reminds me of that. Um, and I'm reading them, like I say, almost as just like internal communication in a startup movement space, right? Um, and again, that's just a different way of reading the text, like a historic way, and in this particular case, a historic way that um, I'm going to draw modern, modern analogues to. So anyway, let's take a look. You know, who were the first Christians? Let's go to the very first document in the New Testament. Not the first one that will appear in your Bible, but the first one to be written. Let's try and get as close to this historic moment of someone who's never heard of any of this before saying, yeah, I buy into that. Let's get as close as we can. Bonus points. Do you know what's, what was the first document in the New Testament to be written? I don't know what I'm awarding you, by the way, for knowing this. Um, it's First Thessalonians. Um, so that's somewhere in the middle of your New Testament. Um, and I have it open here. And we are going to read the whole of First Thessalonians together. Now, you might be thinking, I literally have a Bible in front of me here, you might be thinking, um, Toby, what? Like, 
I signed up for some modern and presumably secular political philosophy, and now we're going to read an entire book of the Bible together? Yes, yes we are. There's a lot of really interesting stuff in here. And I think, you know, we're used to hearing snippets of scripture and engaging with it as scripture. But I think sometimes if you just read a book of the Bible, you get a completely different sense of it. And especially if you read these as historical documents rather than scriptural ones. And for religious leaders, for religious listeners, sorry, or for religious leaders, if there's any religious leaders listening, um, I would follow Dale Martin in just saying I don't think those things are, 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 like, mutually exclusive. I think you can read something as a historical document one day and read it as, um, scripture the next, um, and I'm just not engaging with the theological side. Um, so we're going to read all of Thessalonians, and we're going to read it closely and go through for clues. Who are the people in this community? And what can we tell about them? What can we tell about the message that caused them to want to join this community, to buy into this this belief system, and why? Um, it's only three pages long, Thessalonians, I should say. So we're not we're not going to be here all day. Um, but let's just get started and jump in. And how cool is this, by the way? Because Christianity has gone on to be very important. And, you know, when people look at it from a historical lens, they're often impressed by, like, how much that we don't know. Like, I think a lot of what we think we know about the historical Jesus is pretty speculative. Like, I think he was a real person. He was crucified. We can probably reconstruct some of his teachings to some degree. But like I say, all most of the primary sources on the narrative of his life are a generation later by non-eyewitnesses, who obviously have a very specific agenda in writing what they're writing. So I think when we approach Christianity from a historic point of view, we can often sort of feel like this is something a long way away from us, which it is, about like which we really just, you know, don't know a lot and have to speculate. And that's all true. But in terms of Christianity as a movement, as opposed to Christ himself, we have the personal correspondence of one of the very first people to be going out and spreading it. And that's just, I find, really cool from a historical point of view. Like, I think it's just, like, like, if we didn't have... This, this, like I say, eyewitness, first-hand account of it, what would we give to get it, you know? Like, like if, we, if Jesus had actually written a book and it was lost, what would we give to get it back? Like, Paul's, Paul's not quite at that level, but almost, you know? Um, and this, it's, this, is, this is someone from a totally different world speaking to us, and I just think that's really, really, really cool that we have this window into what was going on. So, let's get started with it. This is a letter, and it's a letter-letter. It's not, we, you know, it's not a, a book in any sort of way we would think about it. Like I say, something like a long internal email <laughs> actually seems to me the, um, the best analogue. So, first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Greeting. Paul, Salvinus, and Timothy, to the Church of Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
grace to you and peace. End quote. So that's 1 1 Thessalonians. And that's just uh, uh, a greeting. That's like, you know, I guess if we're using the email analogy, dear all, you know, would be our, our analog there. But even with that, there's a huge amount we can start saying right off the bat with respect to um, what we can start to deduce about who this community was. So, first thing is it's from three people, not one, right? Paul, Salvinus, and Timothy. And we're going to see as we read that Timothy's just come back to Paul with news on this community. So, that tells us a couple of things. Firstly, Paul isn't a completely solo actor. He's part of an organization that sends out missionary missions, so to speak. Um, and Timothy is someone he's done that with, and there's others. Um, now, by piecing together um, the dates in his work, um, as well as there's some information on Paul in the book of Acts, Although, it's, it's, this is a really tricky process, and I'm not going to run through it here. You can sort of reconstruct when and where these were written. Um, the general consensus is that this is around the year 50. So, if Jesus is executed in 30, this is about 20 years after, after the death of the founder. But probably not 20 years after these people are converted. It, it reads as if these people were converted much more recently than that. Um, so that's the first bit. Paul isn't just some solo prophet. He does seem, there does seem to be a sort of larger international organization here, albeit a fledgling one. The other is, who's it being addressed to? Like I said, this is almost like a dear all. Um, some of Paul's letters do address themselves to groups of specific people, or call out specific people by name. Um, this one doesn't. Um, it just says the Church of Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, two bits of information that are really worth seizing on there. First, what do we mean by church? Um, this almost certainly is not a church in how we would think of it, as in like a physical building devoted specially to that purpose. Um, in which people gather. It's just, church just refers to a group of people who would meet regularly, and they would meet perhaps at the home of one of the wealthier members, maybe even just out in graveyards or other places where people could congregate. They'd eat together, they would worship together, we can begin to reconstruct something of what those services were like. Um, but it's just a group of people. The other one is Thessalonians. What does that refer? It refers to the city in which they live, Thessalonica, which is modern-day Greece, I think. It's still there, by the way. It's the second largest city in Greece today. Um, I think in um, the age of the Roman Empire, this would have been part of Macedonia as a Roman province. Don't absolutely quote me on that one. Um, but that's another big clue. All of these 
what Paul calls churches. I think almost we might think of as, like, meet-up groups, almost. All of them are in cities. All of Paul's letters are addressed to some form of the group of people in such and such city, or the groups of people, the church is, plural, in such and such a city. Corinth, um, Thessal- uh, Thessalonica, and so on. And that's something we know from a variety of different sources, and that matches what we know about Christianity for at least the first few hundred years, which is that it is an urban religion. This is only happening, really, in cities. That's in spite of the fact that a lot of the metaphors and language of the New Testament are very agricultural. A lot of Jesus's metaphors are about fishing and farming and the the wheat in the field and so on, right? Um, So even if its founder might have been from a rural area and used those sorts of um, metaphors, early Christianity was exclusively urban, and that persists really through the next four or five hundred years in many ways. A lot of um, our images of paganism and what we think of as sort of, if you're within Christianity, what we sort of think of as like the other within the European tradition um, are links, are, are rural, right? The in Pagan, in fact, in the ancient world has connotations of ruralness. It wasn't even a religious term at first, in its etymology it's a Latin term that means almost something like hick, you know, yokel, something like that, a sort of derogatory term for country dwellers. Um, And a lot of the things that early Christianity objected most to about paganism, Um, So, for instance, meeting in woods, animal sacrifices, stuff like this. That's, those things are like obviously quite typical of um, the religion in rural areas, right? Um, So that's interesting. This is almost, this is pretty much exclusively city dwellers. And the final thing you can say about cities is these aren't, even like random cities. These are cities that are commercial and trading and travel centres. Thessalonica was apparently sort of a, a, a pretty common pit stop on the route from east to west or west to east as you're moving across the Mediterranean, um, as was Corinth, um, another one uh, where Paul um, set these letters. Um, and that that doesn't feel like an accident. That might be a choice on Paul's part, in that if he's self-consciously going to make converts, presumably he's sort of travelling the road most travelled. He's not really going to, to out-of-the-way places, so it would happen. But it also might tell us about the, the, the people themselves who were joining this this religion, in that they are coming from what we would think of as, I guess, like commercial cosmopolitan cities, with a lot of travellers in them, a lot of traders, stuff like that. And this was quite an interconnected world. Um, People moved around a lot, and there was a lot of trade and commerce around the Mediterranean at this point. 
The final thing we can tell, and it sounds super obvious, just right off the bat from this letter, is that the person writing it, and at least some of the people reading it, are literate. Okay, I know, completely obvious statement, but probably only about, estimates vary, but maybe like 5-10% to 10% of people in this world were literate. It was a more literate world than probably the average society in human history, where like, maybe a tiny, tiny elite at the very top could read and write. More people could read and write than that, and writing was a, a very used technology, um, you know, in the ancient world. And there were a lot of written records of everything, the vast majority of which have now been lost. Um, and it was something that people who weren't at the absolute top could do. So people like you know, like I say, traders, craftsmen, people like that, could keep written notes for, like, business reasons, or writing letters, or stuff like that. Um, and the cost of doing so was quite cheap. The technology that was used was Egyptian pap papyrus, which was quite cheap to produce and traded throughout the empire. Um, so it wasn't like the Middle Ages, where we lost papyrus and books were printed on vellum, which is a type of treated animal skin, um, and that made books colossally expensive. So in the Middle Ages, a full illustrated Bible apparently cost as much as a nice house. That wasn't the case in the ancient world. Like, it was quite commonly-ish used compared to other periods, um, so the fact that someone was reading and writing and had access to paper and so on didn't make them an, like, a, an elite or anything like that. Um, but it also meant that they weren't in like the bottom half of society either. Like they weren't, I, you know, we can sometimes have this image of, of like the first Christians as like the poorest of the poor. And of course that has a certain um, sort of there's a certain romance to that view, right? That this is a movement of, of the most destitute. Um, but th at least the people who were literate would have been in the top half of society without necessarily, like, being one percenters, right? So all of that, just who it's addressed to, who it's from, um, and the fact that it's being written at all, already fill in the picture quite a lot about who this who these first converts were. So let's keep going. If that gives us a bit of a picture of who they were, what are they being sold on? Um, this is quite a nice one for that in that you almost just get a mission statement from Paul as to what's happened. Quote, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering our God and Father, your work and labour of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and the Lord, for you received the word 
in so much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Archaea, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us that the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. End quote. So that takes us through to 1-9. So, a few more big clues as to what's going on in that little bit. Um, firstly, um, I'll just mention, like, this is, this is like, I really read these as, like, organising documents. Um, like, if you've worked in political organising where you're trying to sort of build communities, grow a movement, you want to do uh, positive reinforcement in the way that Paul's doing. So he's saying, um, just to sort of translate, you guys are killing it right now. Like you are, you are, you are doing this worshiping Jesus thing so well. Everyone's heard how well you're doing. So proud of you. It's you. What did we used to call them when I did organizing? Like a shout out. You want to say, I just really want to recognize like the work Rachel did this week. I'm sure you've all heard about like how excellently her protest march that she organized went. Just really killing it, and we're all really proud of her and excited to like replicate the work that she's done. Because if people are doing something that's like difficult and may potentially have social stigma to it, you want them to feel good about themselves and you want them to know that they're part of a community that respects their work. Um, so maybe I'm just reading some of my own work history way too much into that. Um, but that really, really reads as that to me. Um, what about the, the message? Um, why, why are these, what are these people converting to and why? So this is, this is something that is going to reoccur in the letters of Paul. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So idols could refer to a huge variety of different types of worship. There was no, like, we think we, we would call what they were converting from paganism. They wouldn't have thought of it that way. You know, there were a lot of different religious practices and cults, of which the sort of official cult of the, the emperors was just one, you know? This was a very sort of religiously pluralistic world, and most Romans would not have seen being involved with, you know, you might be part of the cult of Apollo, but also attend Dionysian rites or something. Um, they wouldn't have seen that as, like, being in conflict with each other. It's a bit like today, if you get, like, I don't know, if you started a new job, it just wouldn't even occur to you that that would mean that you now had to support a different sports team. Like, those just aren't elements of your life that have to correlate with each other, one for one. Um, so the, what, what Christianity's doing in saying, it's us and only us, like, joining this group means you don't worship any idols at all. It's not just like, oh, 
you know, we're one idol amongst many. We're the true one, and all the others are false ones. That That's quite a normal way of thinking about religion to us now, because Christianity's become so dominant, but that wasn't how people at the time perceived it. So Paul is converting people to something that is, is much more radically exclusionary. It draws boundaries around itself much more radically than other forms of religious expression at the time. So why would you want to do that? Why would you want to stop worshipping these idols? Worship this god that Paul's telling you about, especially when it means that you're incurring quite heavy costs. You can't, or you're not supposed to participate in all of these other different areas of life and just confine yourselves to this um new movement which seems to be quite small and sort of socially isolated why would you do that what's this god going to do for you what's jesus going to do for you well the answer's right there he's going to deliver us from the wrath to come it's just one sentence but in all of that that there's only one sentence that speaks to sort of what's in it for the believer as it were and it's that he's delivering you from a wrath to come so there is a coming wrath, right? And this is a way of being protected from it. Okay, back to the text. This is um, Thessalon 1 Thessalonians 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, our boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted to speak with the gospel. So we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. We did seek glory from people, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so we became affectionately desirous of you, so we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own very selves, because you have become so very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labour and toil, that we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you also the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you as believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, and we encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you had heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For in you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, 
and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So, as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. End quote. Okay, so there's a few more bits to add to the picture there, isn't there? And if we're asking sort of the question, what does this tell us about, like, who's converting and why? Lots of good information there. So Paul's continuing with the positive reinforcement thing. He's definitely, um, like, bigging them up. Um, what about the message? The, the, he talks about gospel a lot. That's, um, I'm not going to pronounce this right, euangelium, evangelium. Um, is the Greek word translated. It literally just means good news. That's what he's saying. When he says gospel, if you're trying to just read this as it would have read to them, you can, and you Christians still talk about this, a lot of um, evangelical Christianity will talk about, we're bringing you the good news, right? Um, what is the good news? In um, modern evangelical Christianity, it's probably something like, if you sort of do X, Y, and Z, you can go to heaven when you die, right? That's the good news um, that modern Christianity is seeking to impart. Um, I'm, I think, and we'll see as we go through the text, the good news that Paul's giving them is something completely is is not that, right? Um, again, in terms of, like, who these people are, isn't it interesting how the, Paul's going on quite a bit about, like, how he didn't ask for, like, financial support for them. He paid his own way along. That's quite an interesting statement, isn't it? He says, I laboured day and night so as not to be a burden to you. So what does that tell us? I think it tells us two things. One, Paul isn't a, an elite. He's not wealthy enough to just self-finance this. He's not like some Roman senator or something who could sort of have the funds to just travel around and just do this. Um, but he's also financially independent. He's like a skilled craftsman of some kind, I think is the read here. A lot of people have sort of picked up clues from all over and speculated that Paul was a leather worker. That specifically, um, he made tents and, like, the awnings that go over, um, like, shop windows. I've no idea. Um, but again, like, what would be the modern analogue to that today? Like, maybe upper working class? Something like that? Or maybe, like, petty bourgeoisie in Marxist terms? I think all of these class dichotomies don't quite work. But again, that matches the picture from the literacy. Top end of society, maybe, but not 1% either, right? It's actually quite a long-running quarrel it seems, in early Christianity, whether you should be accepting donations from your churches. Because it seems like the historical Jesus said that you could, and that a lot of other missionaries were, and Paul doesn't. He doesn't like to do that for whatever reason. He likes to pay his own way, and it seems like he thinks it makes him a bit more authentic. This wouldn't have been unusual at all, by the way, in the ancient world. Um, a lot of, like, sort of religious authorities, as it were, which might be anyone from this sort of work, but someone who, say, was good at interpreting dreams or practising medicine, 
or something like that. Um, wasn't unusual at all for them to sort of charge for their expertise. I mean, again, even though I'm sort of saying these aren't the poorest of the poor, that doesn't mean that we're talking about people who weren't quite often on the edge of starvation. So when people hear about, like, this sort of thing about, oh, should you charge or not charge for, like, I think people go to, like, modern-day, like, religious hucksters. Um, I wouldn't put it in that sense. Like, a lot of people sort of charged for religious expertise then. But Paul's not. Um, which, again, gives you a sense of, like, his position. Also, interestingly, it's that Paul's choosing not to. It's not that the converts couldn't have. And in other parts of Paul's writing, he asks them for money for things other than himself. So, so and uh, other um, Christian leaders, other apostles, were apparently taking payment from their churches. So that again tells us something about the social class of the people being converted. What have we got here? They're, they're urban some of them are literate, not political elites, but also at least some of them have some access to some disposable income. That's about what we've got so far. Another detail I want to pick out is he's talking a lot about, I guess, what we might call the sort of social costs to being a part of this movement. He says, you know, we've suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. Paul is always getting, like, beat up and arrested and stuff. Um, and although we don't know for sure how he died, he probably gets killed for this, right? Um, he also mentions, which we know from elsewhere, right, that this is a, a, a community, a religion, that started in Judea. He said they've become imitators of the church's God and Jesus Christ that are in Judea, right? But he also says it hasn't got a warm, <laughs> hasn't had a warm reception in Judea either, right? So it seems like people are not, you know, super thrilled, you know, even though probably there's maybe only a few hundred Christians on in the globe at this point, people don't like them very much. There are social costs to being a part of it. Um, here's what's probably the reason for that. It's not quite like um, modern religious conflict, where you have competing exclusionary claims. So, you know, I think when we think about, like, religious tolerance and religious oppression and so on, we think about two groups who are both saying, our God is the only way, and everyone else will lead you to hell, and so we have to, like, stamp out everyone else, and someone saying the converse of that. It's not quite that. Remember the bit about turn away from idols? Um, most Romans were not, sort of, exclusivist, and they didn't think in those terms, in terms of their religious expression. Um, the problem was that Christians did. So, in other words... If you're, you know, a devotee of the god Apollo, and one of your fellow worshippers is also going and praying to some other god, that doesn't particularly bother you, because it doesn't get in the way of them participating in and contributing to the Apollo worship. But if they become a Christian, then they withdraw from your community, and they potentially withdraw their financial support from your community as well. So you can see 
why people would have an issue with Christians, it's not that they were Christians as such, it's that them being Christians caused them to withdraw from all sorts of other areas of religious and social life, and a lot of the state cults were held to be important for the maintenance of the state, like you giving thanks and making offerings um, was sort of seen as like protecting the safety of the city, and when people did sort of oppress Christians, it was on that ground. It wasn't rival exclusionary claims. It's like almost like you're not doing your civic duty, which is to make sure that the gods of the city are protected, so they don't, you know, respected, so they don't cause an earthquake or something. That was much more where the hostility to Christians came from. So that, so what's going on with that then? Because that's interesting. They're incurring social costs, which seem pretty real, like as we're reading this, it seems like, you know, it can be actively quite dangerous to be a Christian, but they're sort of almost doing so by choice because they're so exclusionary. So, so what does that mean? Well, this is a lot of the stuff I'm going to start drawing connections back to. But let's get back to the text again. Very little sweet bit from Paul here, where he just he just talks about, like, it's quite a warm letter, isn't it? Like, he, he likes them. Um, so anyway, back to the text. Um, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavoured the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, and I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to enable and exhort you in your faith. But no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that you are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you now know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter and the tempted in you, and our labour would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and he has brought the good news of your faith and your love, and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you, for this, brother, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if we are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? for all the joy that we feel for your sake and your God, as we pray most earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face when what is lacking in your faith. Now may God the Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our Lord the Father and the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints, end quote. So there's a certain amount there that's almost sort of, almost liturgical language, not quite, but a lot about, you know, God and faith and so on. You can see how that, like, you know, could get woven into a sermon or something. Um, 
again, I'm more interested in the sort of, um, you know, what, what are the sort of historical clues in here? Um, well, a few things. One, you're still, there's, you're still picking up on the sense of, like, um, the sort of social costs to being a part of this group, and the sort of exclusionary nature of it, right? But also, at the same time, is there something a bit boastful about how Paul's talking here? He's giving them a lot of credit, right? Like, whatever it is this group's trying to do, they're doing it very well. Whatever it means to be a good Christian at this point, they're doing it. Like, great job, thumbs up. Is it just me? And I'm not the first person to think this at all. Is Paul kind of patting himself on his own back as well? Like, I am, I am the apostle. I am, like, the best apostle. Apostle just means one cent. Um, and it's not coterminous with the original twelve followers of Jesus. Um, you can be an apostle and not one of the twelve. At least in Paul's eyes. Um, he's kind of like, man, I'm good. Isn't he? Isn't there a little bit of that with Paul? You are our glory and joy. So he's, he's giving them a lot of credit and saying you should feel good about themselves. But he's also portraying himself as glorious. And this is something people read into Paul a lot. A lot of people read Paul as being really arrogant. And this is, is not the worst of it, actually, in some of his other letters. There's a bit in one of the others where he's just like, you know what you guys have to be thankful for? And, like, you can boast to everyone about? You can boast about me. All right, that's what you can boast about. Anyway. Um, so there's sort of a humble brag to Paul, isn't there? Like... Um, and you, what, what's going on there, I think it's pretty basic. He's like, he wants to see them. He's kind of scared that they might have converted away or stopped, you know, worshipping in the way he set them up to worship. But he sent this Timothy guy to them, and Timothy's come back and said, nope, you know, they're on it. They're, they're, they're doing the Christian thing great. I'm incidentally using the word Christian. That's probably a little anachronistic. Paul never identifies as a Christian, he never identifies his followers as Christians, and he probably would have rejected the label. This is, this is a, a type of Judaism, a Jewishness to him, although, you know, um, a, very, a very different one, clearly. But, the big, big clue, the people he's converting are not Jews, right? That's, that much is clear from the way he's described this group. These are, or were, we'll get back to that, these were Gentiles, right? So, and this is one of the other big conflicts that runs through early Christian history. Should followers of Jesus be converting non-Jewish people? Paul thinks they should, and it seems like he disagreed with some of the other leaders of the early church about this. Anyway, let's get back to the text. So... We're up to Thessalonians 4 at this point. Um, it only goes on to Thessalonians 5. It's not a long book. Um, Thessalonians 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know that instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. 
For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in passion and lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, and we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning the brotherly love you have, no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that, indeed, is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so you may be able to walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. End quote. Um, so just at the end, again, bit of a context clue about, like, class and social status. They're not elites, they're not like what you might say capital interests. These aren't people who, like, a lot of people in the Roman world made money by, like, say, owning an apartment building and leasing all the stuff in it out. That's how Cicero made his money. Cicero was, like, kind of a slumlord, actually. Anyway, um, so they're not, they, 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 they don't have, like, passive income like that. These aren't one percenters, but they're, they are also skilled enough that they can be financially independent off their own labour, it seems, or most of them can. Um, so maybe, like, some sort of, like, skilled craftsman is sort of, like, what you'd get? Okay. So that we're beginning to get a reasonably consistent picture as to sort of who these people are in terms of social status, right? Um, but what about that other bit about um, sexual immorality? That kind of came... Is it just me, or did that kind of come out of nowhere? Like, like he, he was sort of proceeding quite naturally on. It was like he talked about establishing this church. Um, he talked about how that went. He's mentioned, like, what are the sort of main bits... Um, why they that they should join the church um to deliver us from the wrath to come we've sort of he's mentioned the sort of um social stigmas that this group has he's mentioned that he wanted to see them um and he sent this guy timothy who said how great they're doing that all sort of proceeds quite naturally as a letter and do you see what i mean about like it reads almost like an internal email or something like the, the overtly religious bits like, there's a lot about God, there's a lot of language there, but there's not a lot of hard theological statements. The theological statements we've had are there's, there's the true God and idols, there's Jesus, um, and there's the wrath to come. That's all the theology we really seem to have so far. The rest is, is, is like I say, it's like an organising document. Um, but then, randomly, um, we just get this bit... And this is like the most aggressive Paul gets in the letter, isn't it? He's very like, like I say, bigging them up in the rest of it. And then he gets hard. 
well, yeah, there's a bit to take out of context, but he suddenly comes down hard, is a better way of saying it, um, and absolutely do not do any sexual morality. And this isn't just me telling you this, this is God telling you this, and if you go and do the sexual morality, the rest of it's for naught, won't get saved from the coming wrath, right? So mind this. Um, that really seems to come out of nowhere, doesn't it? Especially to a modern a modern reader. But I'm not sure this would have made any more sense to someone at the time. Um, the word he's using for sexual immorality, um, the Greek word is porneia. It's um, the the root word of uh, pornography. Is is etymologically where that comes from. Um, and what this would mean in context, a lot of people sort of try to make this sort of fit into, like, modern conservative Christian sexual ethics, where it's sort of, like, perhaps read it as, like, an anti-gay statement or something. At least in this bit, that's probably not what's being said here. Porneia would include homosexuality for Paul, but it would also include any form of oral sex, gay or straight, it would include masturbation, it would include um, um, uh, being penetrated, uh, a man being penetrated by an object, it would, might even include stuff like sex where the woman is on top, you know? Um, so, so this is just a very broad category of, like, sexual acts um, that they're not supposed to be doing. The other bit people debate over is he says so i'm reading rsv translation um um which says this is um four four that each one of you know how to control his own body and then there's a footnote on the word body saying or how to take for a wife for himself or how to possess his own vessel what? The, the Greek word here means thing. You know how to control your own thing. But that just reads weird in English. And there's like, it could mean quite a few different things. Um, it could mean you know how to control your own body as like all of it. In English, if you say to control your thing, it kind of like sounds like learn how to control your dick right? Learn how to control your penis, right? Um, like, 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 almost like today you might say, like, keep it in your pants, or something like that. Or, thing might mean their woman. Learn how to control your wife. We don't know. <laughs> like, it's anyone's guess. But he's probably communicating here something pretty different than either a modern liberal or a modern conservative sexual ethics. Like, I don't think anyone can look at this and see, like, a sort of modern liberal ethics which says as long as it's safe and consensual, it's okay. There's, it's not that. But this thing where you say there's, like, good sex, which is sex that occurs, you know, within a marriage, and then bad sex, which is premarital and homosexual and whatever, it's not that either. It's kind of like sex, sexual desire, is the problem. In other letters, Paul, Paul makes it pretty clear that he doesn't have sex at all, and he thinks that's the best way to be, and he would only really condone marriage as a second 
best option. Um, with, with, and Paul's logic for condoning marriage, condoning, not supporting, is that it's a good way of reducing someone's sexual desire to be married. Which is, which is one argument for marriage, right? But that's not how modern conservative Christians would make that argument. I just think with this, the sexual morality stuff in Paul, you just have something that's very alien to us, that's quite hard to reconstruct, and that just doesn't map really onto the sorts of debates we have about sexual ethics at all. Like, there's, there's not, you know, a liberal or a conservative read of this, I don't think. And I think that matches with the rest of what Paul says. He's just, he's just on some other stuff with this. But, you know, I'm interested here about, like, who's converting and why. Because, okay, let, let's sort of chalk this up, right? You're being saved from the coming wrath. Okay, so that's a pretty big plus if you're joining this, but, like, a lot of people say a lot of stuff. Why are we taking this random leather worker's word for it, right? Especially when joining his group means that you have to leave all of your other groups. It means that you'll incur quite considerable social costs for doing so. And now we're learning it means you can't have a lot of forms of sex that would have been completely normal and socially acceptable in the, 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 the Greco-Roman world. And what's interesting here, and what's worth making a note of, is the way it's framed. Do not do porneia, sexual immorality, like the Gentiles do. That's a weird sentence, because who are the people he's talking to if not Gentiles? Well, they're not Gentiles anymore, right? They've been grafted onto Israel. But also, Gentiles in this context means the entire rest of society. There's not like two groups, one of which is Christians, the other which is, is like non-Christians. There's like maybe a dozen Christians in this city in one sort of small like meetup group. And the whole rest of society is the Gentiles. And there's a view here expressed of the Gentiles as sinful. I mean, just put two and two together here. This sort of sexual immorality is bad. It is despised by God. It's like the worst thing you can do. And that, that, that is a defining feature of the rest of society. Right? Which also speaks to this sort of both this quite exclusionary tendency within Christianity, but also a very, very dim view of the prevailing sort of social norms in general. I think Paul's political quietism, you know, he says pay your taxes, you know, the, the, don't challenge Roman rulers. I think that can blind people to just how hostile Paul is. To the existing social order and how bad and how depraved he sees it as. It also sort of makes you wonder, like, why were people joining this? It seems like quite a big ask, doesn't it? Is it just me? Like, if you try and filter away what we know about modern Christianity and just try to see this almost from, like, a Roman freedman's point of view, like maybe like a lower middle class, you might say, Roman, you can sort of imagine, you're asking a lot here, buddy. 
And that's why I think Paul's famous arrogance kind of makes sense. Like, he's talked dozens, maybe hundreds of people into this, personally. He's proud of that fact. Like, he's done something quite difficult. And he's good at it. You know, Paul wasn't one of the original followers of Jesus. He was a persecutor. He, he tells us he was a persecutor of them. He converted. He had, apparently, a very difficult relationship with the sort of existing Christian church in Judea. He went off and did his own thing. And he's the one who really got this thing up and running, it seems like. He was, he's remembered because he was successful at doing this. So I think that's all just more interesting information. Let's get back to the text. This bit is one of the most fascinating bits in the whole New Testament read from um, a sort of historical point of view there. 4.13 we're up to. So he's, he's, this is, yeah. So it's weirdly structured, isn't it? Because the first half, the sort of, we converted you, you're doing great, we sent Timothy to check on you, he tells us you're good. That all sort of makes sense. Then this weird bit about don't do the sexual immorality thing. No more detail, but God is definitely telling you about that. And then with no real lead-in, here comes the next bit, 4.13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Sorry, side note, interjection here. Um, you'll notice it's brothers, not brothers and sisters. Sometimes if you hear this in church, they'll, they'll translate it to brothers and sisters for liturgical purposes. In the original, it's just brothers. And this, as one of the earlier ones, um, seems to be a man talking to men. The later ones, there are women, and there are women referenced, and there do seem to be women who were in um, positions of leadership, like the Apostle Junior, who's referenced in Paul. This one, the first letter, seems to be just men. And that's not my opinion, that's something a lot of scholars have noted. Anyway, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are left alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, we encourage one another with these words. End quote. Okay. I said that the letter was actually pretty light on theology and like religious content. Okay, well, now we got the theology, right? So, what's fascinating about this is he's not. He's telling them that the dead will be raised, right? But it's clearly new information to them. So, you know, Timothy presumably has come back and said, yeah, they're doing great, they're doing great. 
might want to just throw in a thing about sexual immorality, by the way. They're, they're like, doing that, doing that, uh, doing that, uh, um, Gentile stuff again. Oh, and yeah, th th some people have died, and, you know, they're pretty upset about that. Maybe you could reassure them? And Paul's like, yeah, got it. Don't grieve. Pretty radical thing. Because, yeah, there's this whole resurrection thing. <laughs> I, uh, I forgot to tell you about. Which is, which seems wild, because again, from the point of view of, like, the, the types of religion we're familiar with today, isn't that why people join a religion? For life, life after death? Isn't, like, the going to heaven the entire point? Isn't that what people lead with when they're trying to convert you? Not only was Paul not led with it, he apparently, it, like, he stayed with them for, what, days, weeks, months? And it wasn't really even worth bringing up. So, if they weren't converting for that, what were they converting for? Let's go back to the text, because the final bit will answer it for us. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you will have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come down on them as labour pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness. So then, let us not sleep, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet of hope and salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live through him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you then, brothers, to respect the labour among you, and over and above you the Lord admonish you, and esteem them very highly in love and in work. Be at peace amongst yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil with evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everything. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for it is the will of God in Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from everything that is evil. Now, may the Lord himself, peace himself, sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under the oath of the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. End quote, end chapter, end epistle.
So it's not that long, is it? Um, it, it's a letter, like it's a letter letter. So the last bit is kind of like a summing up. Um, the bit before is, so, okay. They're not converting for like life eternal and life after death. They are converting because the day of the Lord is upon them. And this is like, seems to be imagined as like quite a physical destruction of the world like everyone else is going to die you know but they will be saved and so that's sort of why they're converting but again you remember the story i i started with with the you know the prophecy in america in was it 1843 some people heard this thing about, yeah, that the end of the world's coming at this specific date. And they said, well, that just sounds like a load of rubbish to me. And some people said, oh, that sounds right. I want to learn more. And, and so my question that I set up at the beginning is why? What was the difference that made a difference there? Incidentally, complete tangent, um, Paul seems to have a bit of a better idea of how to do apocalyptic prophecy, right? Don't give an exact date. It will come, as he said, like a thief in the night. It's very soon, but part of the whole thing is that we're not going to be told when. It's just going to happen at some point. A bit of a better way to avoid a disappointment? Could be greatly disappointing. Okay, I'm not funny. I'll move on. Um, but why? Well, even just from that letter, do you see what I mean? I think you could read the whole thing and just sort of read it in a sort of scriptural way, it's a lot of stuff about God and a lot of stuff to sort of reflect on as you're praying. And that's fine. But if you read it as a historic text, you've actually got a lot there, right? About who sort of these people are. And might that tell us something um, about why? These were the people who, when they heard the day of the Lord and the coming destruction, went, yeah, that sounds right. So what do we know? These are people living in commercial cosmopolitan cities. They're people who are towards the top of society, but not at the very top. Some of them are literate. Some of them have a bit of money maybe not huge amounts. They seem to have professions like skilled labourers. Um, we know from other letters that there's a lot of freedmen in here. Um, there's, we know from other letters that there will be women involved in this, although not this letter, this is quite a male um, letter. And it seems to sort of be like a bit of a motley crew, right? Joining a group that is very separatist. That, I think, we've picked up evidence for over and over again. This is an exclusive group that sort of shuts itself off from the rest of society and regards the rest of society as depraved and sinful. All of it. So, what are we to conclude for that? How do those pieces link up and tie together? And in tying them together, can we learn anything about contemporary political apocalypticism? Let's go from the primary texts to the secondary. 
Here's something that Orlando Patterson points out in um, Freedom in the Making of Western Culture. Um, quote, What we do know, with near certainty, is the one matter of great relevance to our subsequent argument, to agree that the vast majority of the members of Pauline congregations were artisans, as all the experts do, amounts to an agreement that the Pauline church was composed mainly of freedmen, or of slaves with a high expectation of gaining freedom. Skipping ahead a little bit, we may conclude with the following sociological generalizations about Paul and the early Christian congregations to whom he preached. First, that they lived in large-scale slave societies, sharing the secular ethos, values, ideals, and social assumptions of such societies. Second, that the great majority of the most important leaders were freedmen or their children. And third, that perhaps the majority of them were persons who had already experienced or were expecting soon the death of the social death of their enslavement and their rebirth, literally their redemption into the cherished status of free persons, end quote. So freed man is a social category they had back then um, that we don't anymore. And it kind of doesn't make sense to us, but it's like a stepping stone between slavery and citizen. So when a slave is freed, they don't become a free person. They become a freed person. It's like a third category we don't have. And then their children will be free people. Um, so a freed person would, wouldn't have the degradation and dishonor of slavery, but wouldn't have the full... Um, sort of social status and standing of a freed person either, certainly not of a, you know, Roman citizen. So there was a sort of more complicated hierarchy of freedom than we would necessarily think about. But one thing with freed persons is they could be reasonably wealthy. So there's a lot of freed persons in, like, bureaucracy and administration, as Orlando Patterson notes, um, artisans would, would often be freed people. Freedmen. Um, we know that there were a lot of them in the, the cities, like Corinth was apparently rebuilt by uh, freedmen um, that Paul was teaching and converting in. It sort of matches the sort of economic profile of these believers that we've been building up. And I think that gives us a really interesting insight into what their view of the world must have been like. Because you have a contradiction there, right? On the one hand, you're part of a stigmatised group, and you're, you're from a sort of, you know, you're, you, you have ex real experiences of sort of degradation and the dangerousness of being low status. But on the other these people could be very upwardly mobile, and so you have experiences of things that are status-enhancing, like having money. So your experience of the world would be quite varied. You would experience moments of being high status and periods of being low status. And that's exactly what... Um, the most famous book on this topic, um, The First Urban Christians by Wayne Meeks, 
argues. This is something, by the way, Patterson uses as a source. Um, you can also see it a lot in Dale Martin's work. I think Meeks was Martin's thesis advisor at one point. So I just read this, and it was an interesting read because it's it's a it's a text that a lot of the other texts I like has used a lot. So it was like almost seeing the original. Now what he goes through this in a level of granularity that I tried to give you a bit of a taste of with my reading of Thessalonians, but. Um, I'm not going to go through everything, but what he argues is that that's really the defining feature of early uh, early Christianity, is, is not necessarily either high or low status individuals. Like I said, when I was trying to sketch an economic portrait, they're, they're higher than most, but not at the very top, is probably the easiest way to say it. And what Meeks adds to that is these were status inconsistent individuals. Individuals who in some areas of their life were high status and in other areas of their life were, were lower status. I mentioned that we do know um, that women played a leadership role in early Christianity. We have direct textual evidence of that. Um, well, that would be an example. An independent woman with some money, perhaps who is also literate, um, but obviously within a quite rigidly patriarchal society in which being a woman makes you low status in a number of areas and you know, limits you in a number of other ways. A, a, a urban freed person is another good example of that, that like I've been through, that you, you have high status and low st status in other areas. Perhaps people um, who are upwardly mobile, who have risen above the class of their birth, um, merchants might be a good example there, people from quite humble origins who've made money trading, and as we know, in every society throughout all of human history, aristocrats have looked down on merchants. You know, we're better because um, we made our money slightly earlier than you, or something like that. Um, and so again, a, a, a sort of merchant from a humble background might be someone who would experience status inconsistency, which is to say people who are high status in one area but lower status in another, or perhaps the converse, someone who's educated and has a fancy background but doesn't have money, you know? And this, again, kind of just matches um, the, the picture that we got from the text when we dig through these clues. Um... That's what seems to emerge, is status inconsistency. And this, finally, finally, is where we start to reconnect this back up to the modern. I call this political apocalypticism. We've been talking about religious a lot. But, here's the jump. If you just read the New Testament by statements of belief, and by, like, moral emphasis, who would you assume that this movement is made up of? Well, there's a lot of texts in the New Testament, and they say different things, but one thing they're pretty consistent on is helping the poor and hating the rich. Pretty consistent on that, right? Um, it's why, like, prosperity gospel teaching is just such a theologically ill just illiterate thing. Um, 
like the desire to accumulate wealth is just overtly condemned so many times throughout this text um and it's it, it, these are documents that are very 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 concerned with the well-being of the poor um so what would you assume and i'll throw in that this this was sort of um um an outside movement this was like a, this was a movement that was seen as socially radical annoying maybe even a little bit dangerous by mainstream society what would you put all of that together you'd assume this was a movement of the poor right this was sort of like a peasants revolt type thing albeit a peaceful and a religious one okay here's here's the like here's the like say you took modern socialist movements in america you could also do this with the bernie movement you could do this with like left-wing third parties um you could do this with um sort of left twitter so-called rose twitter and you said just going by moral sort of emphasis who do we think this movement is composed of well really hate the rich very concerned about the poor and we could also add to that that it's sort of it's not as oppressed anywhere near as oppressed as early christianity um but it's still um it's not a mainstream movement either it's something that's a bit on the outside um of like mainstream political debate particularly in its sort of more radical forms that might believe stuff like the the end of capitalism is imminent that's not a mainstream belief right um and that is how people read both of those movements people inside and outside of those movements both early christianity and sort of lefty socialist organizing talk about them as if this is a movement of the lowest rungs of society and in neither case is it and that's not a sort of judgment that's not like a good or a bad thing about these movements it's just a description in both cases if you just looked at um sort of the doctrinal statements as it were you you'd think this was the people at the bottom of society it's not so just like we saw with paul's churches yes there's a lot of emphasis on on helping the poor um even in paul who's not as sort of doctrinal as maybe the gospels or something but he's literate and he's writing to people who are literate which again only five to ten percent of society would have been he's not a slave which would have been the lowest form of society then he's not even a day laborer he's an artisan like he's sort of an in financially independent skilled craftsman something like that again there's no exact modern equivalence nor were they political elites like if paul had roman senators in his congregation you'd best know he would have name-checked them right um and he tends to call out the most important people in the room and occasionally you get like a city magistrate or something but you're gonna have to go a little bit before this will penetrate the sort of elite levels of society sort of same with socialist sort of organizing you think okay well this is this is a movement of the people who have lost out the most 
under contemporary capitalism. Because that makes sense, right? Who's going to be most opposed to capitalism is the people who, um, who have been the losers under the system. Surely that makes sense. Except... Socialist organisations, um, I don't know, the type of people who worked on Bernie Sanders' campaign, um, the type of people who were, like, active and prominent on Rose Twitter, almost all of them have degrees, right? That's kind of, like, maybe our, our equivalent of being literate, in terms of, like, you can sort of take it for granted, but it's something only a small percentage of the population has. Um, a lot of them are, in fact, very well educated, have fancy degrees and, uh, and MAs and so on. If it was the people who'd lost out the most, probably we'd expect to see a movement dominated by people of colour, right? Um, as, as I'm sure you know, like, there's a huge wealth gap in America, um, something like almost $90,000, I think. Um, average earnings are lower for black and Hispanic Americans. Um, so you'd assume if this is, like, the people who've lost out the most under capitalism, it would be women, people of colour, you know, maybe some... It's, it's, it's mainly white guys, right? Young white men? Now, I don't say that to make an attack. I'm not doing, like, a sort of, like... Bernie brothers, to use Biden's phrase, I'm never going to call them anything else now. Um, I'm not doing, like, a Bernie brothers critique. I'm not, like, having a go. I'm just noticing this, right? Like, the movement, I think, at its more self-aware moments, understands that it needs to diversify, and that it can't speak, or it can't try and speak for the people who have lost out the most under capitalism, which is its aspiration. It can't do that credibly. Um, unless it diversifies its leadership. That, that it's not all college-educated young white men, some white women. And that's, that's, that's a positive thing, by the way. I'm not, like, I think it is to its credit that, that these sorts of movements are self-consciously trying to diversify. I think some have had more success, some elements of this have had more success than others. But they, they, they should be, and as I've, you know, done quite a lot on this issue, I think they will have to be if they want to win over, you know, larger sections of, of the electorate. Um, but, to go back to the parallel, it's, it's status inconsistency, isn't it? Now, now here's what's, what's not true either. If we're asking the sort of, like, economic, social status background of the people who go into social organising, while they are not the people who've lost out the most under capitalism, they're not elites either, I don't think. I think this ideology has sort of penetrated elites to some degree now, and you'll have people, like, who is it, Susan Sarandon, who said we should um, uh, be okay with Trump, what was the quote, be okay with Trump winning because he'll bring the revolution or something, and I imagine that she had something socialisty in mind when she said revolution, um, I mean, that's a, a, a much stigmatised quote, but it, it has penetrated elites a little bit now, just like um, um, Christianity eventually penetrated elites, but in its early phases, like, 
And that's not where most people are. Most people, in both movements, I think you'd say a status inconsistent. Like, you've got a fancy education, but you don't have a lot of money. You, um... I mean, okay, I don't think this is a stereotype. I think this accurately describes a lot of people I know, including myself, at one point in my life. You are a young white guy, and so whether you know it or acknowledge it or not, you get treated as a bit higher status because of your gender and race, right? Um, you're also overeducated, so you get credit for having an education and, um, you know, maybe even a fancy education, right? High status. But obviously, while you're a student, and especially if you did a master's or something, you're quite poor, low status. Not only that, but that education, say you graduated around the same time I did, i.e. the time of the 08 crash, you graduated into an economy where that education didn't track to the career path and earning potential that you were promised it would, low status, right? Um, maybe you've worked in sort of lefty political organising, which famously doesn't pay very much unless you get to, like, the very top levels. Um, so your um, lower status. But, you know, maybe you have a following online, or maybe, um, you know, I don't know, you actually, you know, work in one of these organisations and take on leadership roles in various sorts of political activism, which is high status, right? All of which is to say, that, now that's a sketch, and I think some people will feel like I'm stereotyping now, and of course I am, and of course there are women and people of colour and people who don't have a, a you know, bachelor's degree or whatever who work in the movement. Of course there are. Of course. I'm just saying, the sketch I just mapped out, that, that maps to a lot of real people, right? Like I say, including myself at some points in my life. So I'm not, like, saying anything about anyone else. Like, I'm putting myself in this category. Um, and what really seems to, to, to mark that stereotype isn't being the person who's lost out most under capitalism, as I think we can have an image of that movement as, and indeed as that movement has a self-image as, um, nor when people say, oh, Bernie Broads are actually all hyper-privileged, uh, you know, affluent white guys who know nothing about, like, that's not quite right either. We're not talking the top 1%. We are talking about people who have lost out and who have been disadvantaged in various ways, but are also not the most disadvantaged. It's, it's, the, it's not just someone in the middle of society, it's specifically someone who's quite a mixture of having been treated well and having been treated badly, having been treated as an authority and having been treated disposably. You know, I mean, look... Um, just, just, just think about like a single day. I can be, and I'm just, I'll just do a hypothetical, right? But something like this has happened at some point in my life. I'm just not thinking of it. Um, I have a role where I have a prominent voice that people listen to about progressive politics. 
So, like, I am an organiser who has teams of volunteers to get out the vote for Bernie. Um, or, let's say, I'm an adjunct college professor who every day 40 people will show up and listen to me as if I know what I'm on about with the topic. So I experience people treating me as a leader, right? And I'm, I'm like, socially tuned in as such, and when I speak, I speak with the expectation of, of not just being listened to, but being listened to carefully and obeyed, right? Then, later on that day, um, because I don't earn very much money, I have to negotiate a financial problem. I have to delay a bill I'm not able to pay. I have to um, try and return something for store credit because I can't afford to just buy a new one. And the person interacting with me treats me kind of contemptuously. You know, I'm going to the store and trying to return my blow-up mattress, say, because I'm poor and I sleep on a blow-up mattress because I can't afford a real bed. And the person is telling me, yeah, yeah, look, we can't do that. Look, look, just buy another one. They're like 30 quid, and I do not have 30 quid in my bank account at that time. There, I'm low status, right? Um, And I'm made to feel that low status. And, um... Or say, say I try to buy the new one and my card declines. And they go, oh, do you want to try again? Do you have another card? And I don't have another card. And I know damn frickin' well there's $26 on that, and I tried to see if 30 would go over, right? And it's humiliating. I'm not a, I'm not a leader. I'm not an authority. I'm not saying stuff with the expectation of being obeyed. I'm being told stuff and having to abide by it, right? That the person who in the in their day to day life goes from one to the other and back again, that is who builds radical social movements. That is who buys into political apocalypticism or religious apocalypticism. That is the person who, when someone comes along and goes, the end is nigh. This is all coming down around you. That's the person who goes, yeah, that makes sense. Why? Because we've always known and understood this, right? We've always known in political science that there's something about status inconsistency that makes people open to radicalism and to apocalypticism. We've always understood this, and we just really describe it wrong. Um, and if you think about it, that is, that person is the person who is a part of revolutionary movements. If you think about, like, you know, the people who overthrew the Tsar in Russia or so on, it's not pure peasant revolts. It's not the serfs from the countryside coming in. It's people in urban centres who... Like, I mean, how common of this is a profile? Someone who's not very wealthy, but my God, do they have a whole load of, like, education behind them. That's a very common archetype. Or students. Students are always big in these things, right? Why? Because student is a classical, is just, just really type one status inconsistent, right? On the one hand, it's very status enhancing to be a student. 
most people don't get a bachelor's degree and you are. And communities um, put a huge amount of investment into sort of getting the bright kids, identifying them, and getting them into universities. Like high schools invest a huge amount in this. Families invest a huge amount in this. So there's kind of something about, like, you've been recognised as, like, special. You, you, you are in the process of getting something that is in many ways, um, I think wrongly, but in many ways um, is sort of like a, a first step onto a, a, a career ladder that other people don't have access to. I'm not saying any of that's fair or right, I don't think it is, but it is status-enhancing in that respect. Um, feels good to be back home with the family. Oh, yeah, what are you learning about in school? Oh, well, no, we're, we're doing business theory at the moment. Oh, very good, very good, you'll get on with that, right? But at the same time, people hate students, <laughs> and they're poor, and people, like, you know, I, I think, like, so many times people are like, oh, should we go there? No, it's a student bar. It'd be full of, full of fucking college kids, right? <laughs> and people can treat students quite badly at the same time. And, like, you, you're perpetually broke, right? And, like, you'll often have to, 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 to work jobs, like, say, in your service industry or something, that uh, will definitely give you a, an experience of being low status, right? Um, so students throughout history have been a great, great recruiting ground for radical movements and um, a good source of, like, apocalypticism. You could also do it um, with... I, there are apocalyptic flavours to some elements of, like, really radical social justice types. Um, I think most social justice people don't. But there is there is a sort of type of rhetoric in which we talk about what the 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 sort of capitalist neoliberal patriarchy or something like that, right? Um, or yeah, you know, white supremacy. We totalize. We think about the social structure as we saw in Paul as like inherently evil and corrupt, and we talk about smashing the system and you know what will come after, and so on. So although it's not, like, overtly apocalyptic, in, in its more sort of um, aggressive incarnations, there can be a sort of... A, a, an apocalyptic sort of um, flavour to it, right? Well, who are the people that that's coming from? The sort of really... the sort of radical social justice who are a bit apocalyptic-y? Um... Very, very educated people, often academics, but who also are usually women of colour. So again, and this isn't an insult or attack, but status inconsistency. People who in their day-to-day -day lives have the experience of just being thrown from one social role in which you're being treated as like at the top of the hierarchy to another social role in which you're being treated as if you're at the bottom of the hierarchy. and one more, actually, one more link that you could make. We noted, didn't we, when looking at Paul, that these are all people living in cities. Christianity was a urban religion, right? The radical socialism is an urban religion. These are all city dwellers, right? Why? Because cities are where you have 
varied and distinct status hierarchies, and you interact with a lot of strangers. Why are either of those things important, right? Well, for one thing, if, um, you know, we think about um, cities, um, you know, you might be in one sort of institution, say a college, and then another institution, like say a store, to use my other example, right? So there's different, like, ways you have to fit in. Now, of course, that'll be the case with urban areas as well, but the social structure might be less complex and all map down to sort of one hierarchy more. But more importantly, you'll interact with strangers a lot. If you only ever interact with a sort of small group of people, then over time, they'll probably form a consistent estimation of whether you're high or low status, and if you need to be treated as such. So it's much more difficult in a sort of in a rural community where you only ever interact with a small group of people to have that experience of suddenly being switched up social roles. But like, you know, the kid who just wanders into your class um, or the person who just greets you at the, the store when you're living at a city, you have never seen or met before, right? And they're going to take their cues for how to treat you based on, say, your job title or whether or not your card declines, right? So constantly meeting strangers can, and I say can, um, it, it is much more conducive to that feeling of, the, of status dissonance that I've, I've, I've been outlining here. Um, it, it, it enables it, it makes it possible. Now, of course, it may be that you have no higher status markings and just everyone in the city treats you like dirt. That could certainly happen. Um, like, say, you're homeless or something. Um, but Or it could be that you're just across the board high status. But there's the possibility. Cities really open up the possibility of status dissonance in a way that more traditional communities don't. And that's why early Christianity only caught on in cities initially, while it was an apocalyptic creed. Because that's where the, that's where the people who go, yeah, that makes sense, that's where they are, right? Same with radical socialism, apocalyptic socialism. For all that it has aspirations to do a sort of class-based coalition with poor rural people, it never, ever goes anywhere, right? Because cities are where the people who think apocalypticism is intuitive, that's where they are. Now, there will be exceptions to all of this. I'm talking general trends. You can, you know, there will be a counterexample to everything I've just said. But it is a, a, it is a pattern, and you see it. Look at any sort of radical, sort of, um, political movement that sort of seeks a total overthrow of the existing order of things, that has a sort of communist utopia or something, it's not the poorest of the poorest status dissonant people who tend to be at the heart of it. Why? Why? Let me point out, though, before I get to why, two further ways that hook radical social movements and status dissonance together, and why you see them together so much, 
And I think there's a direct analogue between early Christianity and sort of modern radical socialism. Direct analogy here. It, it, it works exactly the same way. The first way is radical movements will invariably, and often unintentionally, select status dissidence people for positions of leadership and influence within the organisation. How does this work? I think Paul's early churches were a bit of a mix of everybody. I think there probably were some genuinely poor people there, some like slaves, some lowest of the low. I, I think we know that there weren't elites there, because like I say, they, they, Paul would have mentioned them, right? Um, but it was probably a bit of a mix of everything. Right, there'd been quite a. It seems like I say, like a bit of a motley crew, you know. Um, well, this isn't a sort of new religious movement that has top-down support. It's not like some Roman senator has adopted this and will personally bankroll it and have like a patron-client structure with it. So they kind of have to work with what they have available. Um, and there'll be some people who, regardless of like their passion or their ability, and I think Paul was clearly very passionate and very able, um, will end up taking on the roles of, say, missionaries, right? Um, because Paul, as we know, is a skilled labourer who can go and sort of set up shop somewhere and sort of fund himself. Well, other people who weren't able to do that maybe wouldn't have the people who wrote letters would be the literate ones. The people who didn't, weren't literate, wouldn't have written letters, right? So, when your social movement is kind of like a ragtag group of, like, people who've united around this thing, but it doesn't have top-down support, um, the sort of people who end up sort of leading and defining the movement will simply be the ones who have the resources to be able to do it and those will very likely be status dissonant people because like i say there's no in the absence of like one percenters there's no one who's like uniformly high status it's sort of who has like a little bit to offer you know um exactly the same thing with modern organizing now this has changed a bit, and there are sort of organisations that have actual budgets now and, like, can pay people appropriately. But for the longest time, being in political organising, unless you were, like, at the very top, paid dirt, certainly, you know, um, I'm thinking in Carlisle quite a lot of weekends, there's a few people with a socialist newsletter and some banners about climate change getting a petition signed. Those people if they are being compensated at all for it, are not being compensated very much. And that's not, that's not a sneer, by the way. Like, more credit to them for doing something they believe in when it very obviously isn't a lucrative thing to do. But I bet that sort of, like, socialist newsletter is a very ragtag operation. And the people who are, you know, defining that and leading it will be just sort of the people who are able to, who, like you know, maybe don't have dependents or, like, um, are able to, you know, put in a bit of free time towards this. Maybe the people who are writing for it um, sort of self-select a little bit because those are the people who have the privilege of having 
degrees and they they sort of know what you know they're a bit more confident to take on essay writing, something like that. Again, not uniformly true. You can pick out counterexamples. But in a weird way, because there's not that much money to be had in sort of far-left organising, you need a certain amount of privilege to get in the door in the first place, right? Um, like, if you're really, really, really just destitute, um... You, that's your focus, not writing a socialist newspaper, you know? Um, a lot of people, and again, this sounds like a sneer, it isn't. And this wasn't me, unlike, like, like Paul, I'm pleased to have paid my own way and been financially independent for most of my adult life. But a lot of people's parents kind of sponsor them. There's, there's, um... I won't name names, but there's a few prominent people in the socialist movement who everybody basically knows were sort of bankrolled by wealthy parents the whole time. Um, people in the... I think if you're familiar with this world, you'll know who I'm talking about, and I don't need to be meaner than that. And I guess there's maybe nothing wrong with it. Um, but again, not poorest of the poor by any stretch. People with, with some resources to throw at it, but also society has treated badly enough at times that a radical social movement would make sense to them, right? So that's the first thing. If you're kind of getting a movement in which you've got a mixture of uniformly low-status people and status-inconsistent people, it'll tend to be the status-inconsistent people who come to lead and define the movement, because they're the ones who have resources to devote to it. Right, that's the first thing. The second, and I think this really isn't appreciated, but you get it so clearly from religious texts, is that radical social movements reinforce status dissonance. It's not just that they're attractive to people with status dissonance, it's not just that they sort of tend to promote people with status dissonance, it's that they amplify feelings of it. So we just did Thessalonians, right? Do you not... There's a bit of whiplash to that, too. Like, Paul goes back and forth in this one very short three-page letter between talking about, like, the social isolation and the persecution that this group has got, the way he said he was treated very, very badly in Philippi, Paul will be speaking to a manager there, right? But then he's also very proud of himself. You're my pride and joy. I take great pride in you. Because course, Paul has a leadership role here, doesn't he? There are people who believe Paul speaks for God. I mean, that's a pretty high-status role, right? And it's just whipping back and forth between how people within the movement are treating him and how people outside the movement are treating him. So Paul, who might already have been a status dissonant person, i.e. he seems to have some education, he has a trade, um, but maybe isn't super affluent, he's not from an old family or anything like that, maybe, I don't know, I'm guessing, from what we know about his biography, sort of st status dissonancy anyway, once he's sort of deep into this, He's much more status dissonant, right? So that's another link. Uh, Wayne Meeks uh, makes that connection in his book. Quote, 
The Pauline Christians believe in Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, crucified for human sin, but raised from the dead and exalted to reign with God in heaven. They are themselves a community that experiences social contradictions. Their groups include, in intimate fellowships, persons of a wide mix of social levels, mostly as individuals and as a whole. They are weak in terms of power and status, but experience... They experience indifference or hostility from neighbours, yet they are exalted by experiences of power in their meetings, both in ordinary forms of leadership, as the groups begin to make their own institutions, and in the particularly vivid demonstrations of spirit possession. End quote. Which is just to say what I've been saying already, that it, it both attracts status dissonance people, but also reinforces it. Is, is that true in modern terms as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, I think one of the things that clearly bugs a lot of the prominent Bernie brothers is they kind of get talked down to and talked dismissively at people in the sort of more mainline left, and you can tell it drives them up the wall. I mean, again, that sounds like judgment, but we all let things like that get under our skin. But on the other hand, they have people who really hang on their every word, right? So you lose status by being a member of a stigmatised group. And again, modern socialist organising is probably, you know, definitely, in fact, not as stigmatised as early Christianity, not saying that. But it's still, it's something people can kind of sneer at, right? In, in, in a very similar way, people definitely sneer at and talk down to people who do social justice organising, certainly, right? Probably even more so than socialist organising. But at the same time, being within that community can be quite status-affirming, especially if you have a leadership role within it. So, I think those two things help explain a lot of this connection. It's partly that radical movements of which apocalypticism will sort of almost always be one it's hard to be like mainstream apocalyptic although i guess some people are you can get that with maybe some forms of american christianity but radical like like capitalism is coming to an end is always going to be a bit of an out there movement right um i think we'll sort of invariably select people for leadership positions who are status inconsistent or experience status dissonance and then also reinforce it that's part of it i also just do think though that being status dissonant makes you that's that's the answer to the question right i posed at the beginning of why do some people think it makes sense and others don't it's people who are status dissonant who think it makes sense now Here's two things I'm not doing with that answer, just before I get to it. Firstly, this isn't a statement of, like, historic materialism. I'm not saying, you know, your ideology is just determined by your um, economic circumstances. Ideas matter, you know. I have met socialist millionaires and homeless libertarians. I have met real people who correspond to both of those. But both of those are exceptions, not the norm. There is an overall trend to be had which goes the other way there, right? And not everyone 
whose experience is strong status dissonance buys into apocalypticism of any kind because quite a, few, a lot of people are status dissonant um, but apocalypticism is quite a fringe belief right um, but nonetheless I think they're more likely to they're predisposed to um, and again there will be people who aren't status dissonant who just become convinced you know on the merits of the case say so you really do go through your bible line by line and add up the dates and like oh shoot really is 1843, or, you know, you really read your Karl Marx and just, yeah, okay, yep, capitalists are digging their own graves sort of thing. The, those happen. Nor, by the way, am I um, approaching this through what you might call like an intersectional lens. I'm not arguing against it either, but I'm talking about status, not identity here, right? Status, identity can correlate with status, but there are forms of status, for instance, um, having a leadership role in an organisation that don't reduce down to identity, right? Um, okay, but so why? Here's, here's the first mistake people make, is the one that I've been tracking, is they say the sort of radical movements, particularly ones that say everything's going to come to an end, that'll correlate with how much you're losing out in the current order. Doesn't it just make sense the people who lose out most from capitalism will want to bring it to an end? That's not the pattern we see. Um, let's go back to Wayne Meeks. This is what he writes about this. A millenarian movement. So, millenarian means like apocalyptic. Um, quote, a millenarian movement looks forward to a series of events in the immediate future that will radically transform the existing relationship of power, prestige, and wealth. The ancestors will send a ship loaded with cargo for the natives, which will enable them to live on equal or superior terms with the white colonials. Or, miraculous means warfare, which will enable the natives, finally, to obtain their rights by cathartic battle. The holistic, this holistic picture of reversal or renewal, which envisages a change of the entire world, presupposes that the participants nurse strongly felt dissatisfactions. They are, of course, almost invariably, people who are not competing successfully in the existing scheme of social transactions. Yet it is not enough to say that the deprived groups develop millennial dreams. First of all, it is not their absolute level of poverty or powerlessness that counts, but the way in which they perceive their status as relative to those other groups. People who have been big men in native society, but have subsequently been upstaged by colonial officers, may be more likely candidates, for example, than those who have never enjoyed status. Those who have found opportunities to get ahead in a new situation, but now discover that their mobility is blocked at a certain point by lack of the dominant culture's skills. End quote. So that's giving an outline there, right? The next step people make is they, they get it right that, okay, it's not the poorest of the poor who are attracted to apocalypticism. It's the status dissonant. And then here's where the political science literature goes with it. The political science literature then just makes the same mistake. It says it's because those people are bitter and they feel inconsistent. They feel like, you know, 
they've been like split between two selves um and they think this millennial apocalyptic renewal will make them whole again because these people are people who are treated inconsistently they almost have like a divided soul um and they they need this 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 great you know cleansing by fire or however you visualize it in order to feel whole again that's how the political science literature that there's a few really famous books um on it think about it a lot of the time no no nobody experiences themselves as incons as, as inconsistent we experience ourselves as contiguous wholes right People who are status dissonant experience society as inconsistent, and that causes real so social psychological problems. Back to Meeks, because I think this paragraph just nails it, and it, it, it'll map over exactly to the political, although this is about the religious. Quote, it is therefore not an adequate explanation of apocalyptic beliefs to treat them as compensation in fantasy for real-life deprivation. A widespread scientific version of Nietzsche's no notion of resentment as the source of religious belief, particularly of early Christianity. Rather, the anthropologists involved in such studies contend that the crucial factor is cognitive or symbolic what is wrong with the precedent, present order is not just that the effective people lack goods or money, but that the rules for getting and using power and prestige for participating fully in social interactions have somehow been changed. That traditional ways of defining the criteria by which the content of manhood is to be measured no longer work. Their world, their symbolic universe, no longer makes sense. That is, it no longer provides an effective picture of the way things are, nor effective recipes for how to cope with that reality. End quote. People who experience status dissonance are in a unique epistemic position. We talk about lived experience a lot, and we usually do so in the context of listening to people who um, have had negative experiences that we don't share, or had an identity that we don't share that's less advantaged than ours. Not knocking that. Totally valid. Um, but so do status dissonant people in a weird way. We tend to think about society as operating in accordance with stable and predictable rules. There's a patterning to it. That patterning may be unfair, but it makes sense, right? That's a sort of natural assumption. Natural's maybe a bit of a dangerous word, but that's an assumption that people have that tends to be very widespread. And we sort of have to think that at some level, because we have to make decisions and engage with the world. So there has to be um, some sort of guidance for how to do that, right? Um, 
So you can imagine people who, are, you know, at the top are consistently high status might feel that there's a predictable pattern that's model, you know, and, and this is very much what you see of the mythos or the, 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 the types of ideology that people who are consistently high status will evoke. You get to the top by working hard or, you know, whatever, right, fill in the blanks. But there are rules by which it works, and those rules are just. People at the bottom who are consistently treated as low status will see there as being rules, or rather, you know, will be most naturally predisposed towards a sort of description of the world, which sees them as being rules, but sees them as unfair. How often have you heard someone sort of say, ah, it's just the way things are. Rich get richer, poor get poorer, am I right? And, you know, we, we, as over-educated but status-dissonant people, right, can often get bought up into our own mythology and think we are sort of speaking for the people who are consistently disadvantaged. And actually, like, can get it wrong sometimes on that basis. You know, I've talked a lot about, like, criminal justice reform and so on. If you do surveys and ask most people why they're in prison, you don't get some philosophic thing about free will and determinism and people's disadvantage and moral luck. You get a very sort of conventional morality story. I did something wrong and I was being punished, and I'm being punished. Yeah, it sucks. I hate it. I wish I was out sooner, but why are you in prison? Because I nicked stuff, you know? Um... In other words, it's predictable, and there's a stable ordering to it. They just might not like it very much, or they know that they're losing out. Maybe sometimes even they feel that they're justly losing out. But even when they feel like they're unjustly losing out, often the assumption is that it at least makes sense why. The whole world is set up to advantage rich white men or something, and if you anything else, you kind of just screwed going in. It sucks. But it's understandable, it's explicable. So status dissonant people have a really, really unique viewpoint here in that they're the one group in society who can't assume that. Because to them, society is insane. Assuming they experience themselves as a consistent and contiguous whole, which, which we all do, it's society, it's the social order that doesn't make any sense. One minute you're respected, you're a leader. One minute you're being told your words carry weight. They carry knowledge, they carry meaning. People should be obeying you. The next minute you're being told the exact reverse. You haven't changed. And it's hard to, how do you tell a consistent story through that? I'm not saying this is the process that's going on consciously, but it's a very unique epistemic viewpoint, isn't it? Something about lived experience, right? Like, this is, this is, this is people who have a view that the rest of us don't. And the view is correct. Society is insane. It doesn't function. Hierarchies of status don't function by rules that are coherent with each other, or that are stable and predictable over time. The world, our social and political worlds, don't make sense. There's not a coherent moral story you can tell that will provide a 
coherent and consistent justification for even an idealised form of liberal capitalist democracy. It's not. Liberalism, capitalism and democracy are different projects. They're justified by different ideological frameworks that sometimes work with each other and sometimes radically contradict one another. Nor should we necessarily expect the world to make sense. And status dissonance people see that the most clearly. They, and they see the radical unacceptability of the world in many ways. But the thing is, that's not a view that human beings can stably hold. We need to believe that the world is stable and ordered and predictable. Even if it's predictably unfair, we can deal with that thought much more easily than the idea that it's insane. And the entire language that we use in politics is always reaffirming the idea of a set of concepts and categories which define the sort of, quote, natural order. We're always affirming the idea of a world in which everything has its, its allotted place and a proper place within that, that schema of concepts, right? So, like, one of the ways we do this in the modern world is we import language from science to describe our political reality. So the time was when all the different ideologies in the world, from conservatism to libertarianism to liberalism to socialism, were all borrowing the language of evolutionary science. Now it's Newtonian science. We talk about people and systems as sort of discrete particles. We use phrases like equilibrium, direct import from the natural to social sciences, because it, it, it signals and it gives us the sense of a, a predictable and stable set of rules to the natural world. But of course, social systems aren't in equilibrium in, any, in the same sense as the way planets are, but we use that language, we like that language, and we like thinking about the social world through a set of scientific concepts because they're ordered and stable. The world has to make sense, right? What happens when it doesn't? And this is the thing. You are capable of believing a contradiction. Because what, what I'm going to say is that statinous dissonance can, not always, but can, lead to you believing two different things at the same time. One, the world has a stable order to it. There's a sort of natural ordering of things, you might say. And two, that it doesn't, that it's insane. Now, you might sort of say, yeah, but people can't believe those two things at once. They absolutely can. And it's that that's generative of apocalypticism. By analogy, Hear me out here. This is going to seem like a bit of a jump. When we discriminate against people, you know, really discriminate, view people as like, you know, lesser categories of people, the phrase subhuman can be a bit misleading. We both view them as human and not. 
you know, really racist propaganda, like, say, Nazi propaganda or something like that, at the same time will emphasise both the humanness of, say, Jews or whatever oppressed group, and their inhumanness, comparing them to rats and insects and polluted, dirty things. I'll get back to that language. And people can believe both simultaneously. People can believe both simultaneously about society. And the way that... The reason I went to that, and I'm going to use this as a, as a language to describe it, is this is how um, David Livingston Smith um, makes sense of um, um, that in his work on dehumanization. And what he argues, and I think something very, very similar is going on here, um, and this is like my original contribution to this argument, everything else, I'm just sort of working from other people's, um, is that we don't simply regard, when we dehumanise people, we don't simply regard the dehumanised as sort of lesser than, we regard them as monstrous, as scary in the same way that monsters are scary. And indeed, the language of the monstrous is very, very present in how we describe the dehumanised. Right, we can often literally describe people when dehumanising them as monsters. It's also very present in how apocalypticists describe society. They describe it as monstrous. And there's a reason for that. I think it's the same reason. So, Smith argues that monsters have to be both physically threatening and metaphysically threatening. So physically threatening is obvious enough, right? The werewolf can scratch you up, right? Monsters have to be... It's not enough for them to just be a bit weird. They have to be dangerous, right? Um, and that, that holds true for both. You know, monsters are obviously dangerous, but also, like, when, you know, the Nazis dehumanise Jews, they portray Jews as dangerous. You know, anti-black sort of racist rhetoric portrays black people as criminals and so on, right? In the same way... The apocalypticists' view of society is that it's dangerous. It's physically dangerous. You know, being low status is dangerous. You know, the more low status you are, the more free people are to do things to you without fearing retribution, right? Being poor is quite dangerous, you know? Um, losing out in the social pecking order is dangerous. So society is dangerous, but it's not just dangerous. There's something else that has to be added to it to get it monstrous, and to get the sort of, the, the intensity that this belief system requires, and that's, that's metaphysical threat. So, quoting from Inhumanity by Smith, quote, Monsters have also got to be metaphysically threatening. Metaphysics is a term that philosophers use for the study of the fundamental structure of reality. It is concerned with the kinds of things that exist and the relationship between those things. Something poses a metaphysical threat if it undermines your conception of the basic structure of reality. If everything else that exists is in some sense natural, then metaphysically threatening things are disturbingly unnatural. They are lesions in the orderly cosmos. End quote. Here's an example of that, and like the, 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 
the sort of philosophy of hover, which apparently is a thing, um, speaks to this really, really well. Um, so, here's a passage from Arthur Manchin's novel, The House of Souls. Um, what would your feelings be if your cat or dog began to talk to you and to dispute with you in human accents? You would be overwhelmed with horror. I'm sure of it. And if the roses in your garden sang a weird song, you would go mad. And suppose the stones in the road began to swell and grow before your eyes, and if the pebble that you noticed at night had shot out stony blossoms in the morning. End quote. Then continuing on from that passage, Smith writes, it's easy to see why physical threats are terrifying. Being, concerned, being cornered by a rabid dog is terrifying because the dog might harm or kill you. What's so scary about a talking dog, or singing roses, or blossoming pebbles? None of those things can hurt or kill you, but they're nonetheless the stuff of nightmares. How come? Another way to understand that special terror elicited by metaphysically threatening things comes from logic, oddly enough. Logicians hate contradictions because anything follows from a contradiction. In logic, this is a weird technical point about the conditions that make if-then statements true, but the principle that anything follows from a contradiction also has ex existential significance that reaches far beyond the dry technicalities of formal logic. Think about it this way. If roses can th sing or dogs can talk, then anything can happen. The world becomes unpredictable and dangerous. What seemed like firm epistemic ground crumbles away beneath our feet. End quote. Okay. This is at the heart of apocalypticism. We are believing two things simultaneously. A contradiction, right? Society has to be ordered, and yet it is not. Right? What follows from that contradiction is that anything is possible, right? The epistemic ground crumbles beneath our feet. Often, we perceive metaphysically threatening things as threats to the natural order of things. Here, we are perceiving society itself as a threat to the natural order of things. Society itself is violating our basic assumptions about how society should operate. It is both physically threatening to us and metaphysically threatening. It is an affront to our ability to survive and to our assumption that the world is intelligible by us, which are probably like our two most fundamental things, right? And so it has both of the qualities that make a monster. You can't just have a big dog. It also needs to be a dog that turns into a human and back and forth, right? A dog is scary. A werewolf is terrifying, right? It's not enough for society to merely be dangerous to you. We can actually cope with that okay if we can understand it, right? If we can ascribe a coherent schema to it. 
It's physically threatening, and it's metaphysically threatening. People who experience very strong status dissonance can end up experiencing society not just as a wolf, but as a werewolf. It, it's not only a, it, it's much more powerful and much weirder than the usual accounts of this usually give. It's not that people just feel resentful. It's not that, you know, the people who have the most to gain by a change in the order of things support a change in the order of things. It's that the social order is, is being conceived of as monstrous. And doesn't that just run true for both of the groups that we've studied in this episode? Modern socialists are communicating something to us that's considerably stronger than just the distribution of wealth is non-optimal. Um, something is profoundly wrong with the way things are. And if you don't feel that assumption to begin with, you can often miss what's actually being communicated in that speech. And again, think about Paul. The world is sinful and evil, right? The, the early Christian churches were an act of radical withdrawal from that world, certainly by the standards of the time, right? Because the world was monstrous. And, of course, like, if you're experiencing extreme status dissonance, that threat, both physical and metaphysical, isn't something abstract. It's not like a werewolf in the, in, in, in the movie. Like, you're encountering it. Every day as you walk home, you're seeing that werewolf circle you. Every time that you go from teaching your, your class in college on an adjunct salary that's actually below the minimum wage to then suddenly feeling humiliated in a store, that's the werewolf there, right? Society is after you. And not only is it after you, but it's incomprehensible. It doesn't map. You're the same person. Why do people suddenly turn on you? It's because it's monstrous. But that can't be. This has to be made sense of somehow, right? Because society must be ordered. And so when someone comes along and says, it can't last. I mean, look. Look around you. Isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious that this can't last? Isn't it obvious that the contradictions inherent within the system are going to pull the whole thing down any minute now and order will be restored? We will move to a state of affairs in which things are predictable and occur within a sort of schema that, 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 that maps. What do you say to that? You say, well, yeah, that just makes so much sense, doesn't it? It's almost like taking a breath. It's like, okay, I get it now, okay. I was struggling with this. But yes, the way things are is unnatural. It is monstrous. It has fallen out of line with the natural order. That can't go on forever. 
okay, yeah, the whole thing is set to collapse. And isn't the language of contradictions, like, central to most apocalyptic visions of the world, right? Certainly as to, like, Marxism or something like that, right? It makes sense that we are in late-stage capitalism, because this cannot, surely cannot last. It's insane. Also, if you're being stalked by a werewolf, how attractive is it when someone comes along and says, this is how you kill one? This is how you put the beast down, so that when you're walking home at night, you'll know that the only things out there in the dark are dogs and people and things that may or may not be threatening to you, but you can at least understand what they are. The natural order will have been returned. Doesn't that just make so much sense? If that's the sort of social and psychological experience that you're bringing to the table. And if you're not, if you're, let's just say, consistently middle status, you're never quite a leader, but you're never quite being talked down to either. And someone comes along, says the existing order of things is going to be overturned, and your experience of the world is as something coherent. You know. Well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, come on, like, what? Or, you know, say, say your experience of the world is consistently high status. Well, that clearly doesn't make any sense. And it's, it's, a, it's an immoral thing to think because the world is ordered and it's justly ordered. And this person's coming along trying to disorder it, right? So for the apocalypticist, the apocalypse is an ordering act, right? For anyone else. The apocalypse is a disordering act, right? And the difference that makes a difference as whether you will see the apocalypse as an ordering or a disordering act is whether you see the existing world as ordered or disordered, right? Does that all track? If the world is disordered, then sweeping it all away and starting anew is ordering, right? We are creating or returning to or what have you, an ordered world. If the world already is ordered, even ordered unjustly, the apocalypse is a disordering act. Which is why apocalyptic visions often actually aren't attractive to people at the bottom, because even something that's ordered but unfair can be preferable to something that is disordered. This isn't about what's true, by the way. It's just about the frameworks that we bring to the table. Logic has a practice, but it's not that of the logician. There's a structure to all of this stuff, but it's not what you'd get from designing a social contract from scratch. This is how human beings think and behave in the reality of the world. And there are principles to it. We need the social and political world to be ordered. Even if it's ordered unjustly. And experiencing it as disordered creates a contradiction. 
a contradiction that is unpleasant and scary for us, that apocalypticism can resolve. So, if I'm right, and that, that's the mechanic that's working here, what would we expect to be true of apocalyptic movements and rhetoric? What we've just seen so far, right? That, that when we looked at who they were attracting, they would, at first pass, look like, and often represent themselves as, speaking for the people who've most lost out under the system, right? But actually wouldn't be from that. They'd be from other sections of society, which you might say are like, towards the top, but not at the very top, but are actually marked by not either being high status or low status per se, but status inconsistent, and you'd expect those people to disproportionately come from environments that um, are more conducive to producing status inefficiency. You'd expect them to come from cities, for instance. You'd expect them to come from places where people move around or travel a lot, cosmopolitan trading cities, for instance. You'd expect them to come from environments like universities, which can create a lot of status dissonance. And that's exactly what you see, right? You'd also expect them to have a view of the social structure, which is overwhelmingly negative, right? And more than just, like, there's improvements to be made here. Have you noticed, like, apocalyptic socialists, never, they never phrase it as there's some room for improvement. It's a lot harder than that, right? You'd also expect their view of the social structure to, to be rife with images of um, uncleanliness, um, corruption, sinfulness, pollutedness. That sounds a bit weird. Why? Purity law, or at least one sort of dominant interpretation of this, um, but one interpretation of when we talk about pure and impure things, is it's kind of another way of making sense of like this ordered and disordered. Um, impure things are things that are like contaminants on the natural order, right? Things that straddle categories tend to be marked as impure in religious terms. So we would expect, if, if, if I'm correct, and that like, like the view of society is in a certain sense as monstrous, we'd expect it to be a dirty, <laughs> dirty monster. Um, yes, that's exactly what you get. So Paul's perception of society is as impure and as defiled, right? They defile themselves with idols and sexual impurity, right? They're degraded, impure, right? And that's, that's the relevance of the sexual impurity bit in this schema. It's a marker of what's wrong with Gentiles, which is simply to say everyone else in the whole existing set of social orders. Um, their um, sexual expression, as it were, is is not is the thing that they're doing that's defiling them. It's also what sort of marks them out, right? Gentiles are defined by their sexual immorality. 
Nothing like that's going on with socialism, though, is it? Well, in the radical forms, yeah, it is. Um, capitalist consumption becomes something that's not just, like, wasteful, inefficient, but something that's impure, right? And all of the images that they use to, like, attack outgroup members tend to sort of tie them back to, like, capitalist consumption, right? So, for instance, think about the insult wine mums, right? That's something socialists use as a, as a insult about, like, liberals who are insufficiently radical. Or, oh, they'll just, you know, we'll do the hard work of getting someone elected and they think it'll be all over, and then they'll be out at brunch, right? That's something that got said a lot. This isn't an attack, actually, in this context. Why? Because society is, is, is sinful and impure, which is to say it, it straddles boundaries and it exists in, in contradiction of and defiance of the natural order. And so society to them, the sort of marker of its evil is its capitalist nature, whereas I think to Paul a lot of the evil of society was to do with sex in a way that honestly I don't really understand. Um, but so markers of capitalist consumption are markers of impurity, right? It's a bit of a stronger claim than, like, going out to brunch is wasteful spending that could have gone on the poor. That's not quite what's being communicated. You're, you're, you're richly impure, in a way, I think. Well, I'll give you one more example. Do you remember the charcuterie board thing? Okay, this might just be for those of us who are terminally online, but there was a thing where one of these, like, hammer and sickle accounts, you know, someone had made themselves, you know, you know what a charcuterie board is, where they have, like, you know, bread and cheese and you got little bits of salami and stuff? Um, someone had made themselves a charcuterie board, and as many of us do, including myself, wanted to share a picture of it to Twitter. Um, and one of the sort of hammer and sickle accounts quote-tweeted it with, with something just really contemptuous and dismissive, like, ugh, this is what rich people eat, I guess. And then a whole people bunch of people started, it's one of these storm-in-a-teacup type things, started mocking it and going, see, like, this is, this is, like, what's wrong with the contemporary far left, is, like, you're telling people they can't have a cheese board. Um, they're not, you know, it's gonna seem like a bit of a heavy lift to, 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 to get them on board with your movement, right? In the same way as I said, you know, it seems like a bit of a heavy lift joining Paul's churches. You have to cut yourself off from everyone else and stop having sex, right? Like, he's joining the far left today means you've got to sort of cut yourself off from everyone else and stop eating charcuterie boards? Apparently, because, you know, a bunch of... I mean, this got very heavily mocked, but a bunch of people rushed to the defence of it and started making points which... I don't think really made sense taken at, like, literal face value about, like, how people shouldn't be having cheese boards and that, like, this was, like, you know, really rubbing their affluence in the face of people who were, like, genuinely starving or whatever. Um, I'm not saying I agree with that, I don't, but, like, that's not what's being communicated. What's being communicated is this is impure, it's disgusting, it's like having human waste in food or something, which is to say it's a violation of the, the ordering of things, right? Um, it's ritually impure, 
I think, is a better way of thinking about it. Because society is monstrous. And by having your charcuterie board, you're, you're, you're sort of like... You're participating in that monstrousness, right? You're signalling support for it in a way. That is not at all how the person who bought the charcuterie board feels about it, right? They're just enjoying some cheese, but then maybe they don't see society as monstrous, right? And if you don't, and if your view is more like, yeah, you know, we, we should redistribute some income, but what's my cheese board got to do with that? If you have a purely rational view of what's wrong with the social order, as like, yeah, like, there's problems to be fixed, but they can be fixed within a framework that's comprehensible. Like, it's a mixture of good and bad, and we can get rid of the bad, but it's not insane and disordered, and hence it's not monstrous. You know, you're dealing with a wolf, not a werewolf, so to speak. Then it's really, really hard to see why the cheese board is wrong. But if society is monstrous, and vile and disordered and impure, impurity is contagious, you know? It gets passed on. It's like a disease. It's weird to see how someone wouldn't see what the problem is here. Let me know, by the way, if this is making sense. Um, I think some people are going to hate this argument. Um, the final thing you'd expect, because society is disordered and monstrous and impure, and impurity is contagious, you would expect an apocalyptic group to erect very strong boundaries between itself and society. Yes, I mean, yes. Have you ever met people in your life more concerned with the preservation of boundaries than fundamentalist Christians and revolutionary socialists? Have you, like, they are defined by their boundary setting, right? Um, but look, I mean, we, we did this in Paul again and again. There's a separateness to the Pauline communities that's quite radical for the time. Like I said, that sort of religious exclusionary impulse wasn't the norm in the Roman world, right? And it wasn't shared by them. They weren't, the, the Roman way of practicing religion was much more pluralistic. But there's a withdrawal from a world, um, the, the focus on economic self-sufficiency. So you're not, again, you can depend on yourself. There's a practical reason for that. There's also a, a sort of spiritual reason that the world is dirty and contaminating. And that's, that's a language that still pervades Christianity to this day, albeit in a looser and perhaps more abstract sense of the sinfulness of the world, the fallen nature of the world, the sort of redemption through Christ, right? It's not quite as, like, hardcore, I think, as it was in the original. Absolutely the same for revolutionary socialism. Um, very concerned with sort of distancing from the world, very concerned in the maintenance of boundaries, um, I argued before on a podcast a lot of what's going on with like something like making Medicare for all and supporting it a litmus test as opposed to some other method of reforming the American healthcare system is it's it's a boundary right and there's practical reasons for the boundary I think there are sensible there are explicable not not always wise but there are explicable political reasons why, when democratic socialists participate in electoral politics, 
they want to have quite key markers on who, who's on team and who's not. Um, but there's also spiritual reasons, which is for a lot of political apocalypticists, the world isn't just, like, bad. It's dirty, it's polluted, it's fallen. You need to establish a community of the elect, right? And then the final, final thing that would seem to follow from that, right, is if you're really big on establishing boundaries for the reasons that we've discussed, you also want, do you not, um, mechanisms for um, enforcing in-group solidarity. If you're going to be, like, very shutting out the outside world, you want things that bind people to the group. Look at Paul going through and going, how proud I am of you, da 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 And actually, if you read between the lines of 1 Thessalonians, he's not that, like, he seems to think that, like, they're kind of letting the side down with this, like, sexual immorality and grieving their dead, you know? But he's very much, I think you can see that as, like, group identity, group solidarity building, you know? And I said it reminds me a lot of the language lefty organisers use, because that language is performing exactly the same social function, right? You want to create a feeling of group solidarity and group loyalty out of necessity because you're maintaining reasonably strong barriers against an outside world viewed as impure, right? Um, and one more marker that's just, what does Paul say throughout the letter? How does he refer to his audience? Brothers. And then later on, brothers and sisters. Socialists do that too. Also, comrade. This sort of term, very warm, affectionate terms that signal out members of the in-group. Now, Christianity is more effective. Early Christianity, is more, I think, was more effective at this than modern revolutionary socialism was. It added to this a set of scripture, a set of sort of rituals that gave those groups meaning and allowed them to sort of exist. It made people happy, essentially, I think. I think that the impression you get of the feelings that this movement gave was one of almost ecstatic release, spiritual freedom in a world that is, you know, contaminated and sinful and scary and monstrous it's not enough to just put up the barriers you know do the incantations to keep the werewolf out dig the ditch so that the polluting disease doesn't get in you freed people from that world and paul overtly uses that language you were enslaved to sin and now you have freedom in christ right there's a theological meaning of, to that, of course, but just think about it in sort of socioeconomic terms. You were a part of this world which is both terrifying and toxic, polluting. Now you're not. You're inside something that's put up this. Oh my god, doesn't it feel good? Doesn't it feel good to be out from under that, finally? 
And that's the thing. Spiritual freedom isn't like a, a sort of abstract category. It's not like a sort of... It's not merely just like a salvation thing of, oh, you know, you're going, you're going to heaven now. There's a social function to it, which is to allow people to feel relief, to feel like they finally come up for breath socially, to feel like these are finally my people, to feel ecstatic release after how wearing it was to encounter the world as monstrous. That's what early Christianity gave people, and that's why it went from 12 people to 25% of the Roman Empire, right? And as Orlando Patterson tells us, felt experience comes first, then the rationalisation of it. That that group can give you that real experience of spiritual freedom is the reason people come to it and defend it, and then they'll build rational structures around it. Is modern radical socialism giving people spiritual freedom? Probably not, by and large, right? Is modern social justice movements doing that? Probably not, and I think to social justice's credit, this is something that they are aware of and work has been done on. There's um, a, a really famous article from a few years back now called Excommunicate Me from the Church of Social Justice, which is about, it's written from a, I think a queer trans person of colour, but someone who's like, you know, not a white guy at any rate, about like how they experience so much oppression from the world, but when they're within social justice spaces, they want to be able to sort of like I say, whew, to take a deep breath and finally be out of that. And a lot of the sort of unpleasant aspects of social justice culture about like aggressively challenging people and so on make that impossible. And I think the language of the church there isn't meant to be derogatory. It's meant to be saying this is what we should aspire to, is the sort of relief and release that organised religion can give, there's no reason that couldn't happen necessarily in a secular context, right? And, I mean, overall, you know, I would have to say, despite not literally believing in it, um, as a sort of ideological system, as a, a sort of social meme, whatever, that can grow and replicate itself, my impression is early Christianity was a much more sophisticated and successful, ultimately, um, sort of ideological project than most modern forms of political apocalypticism are. I, and I think the, the reason it was successful is it, it was sort of better designed conceptually, right? Um, there's not a liturgy, a secular equivalent of a liturgy, in sort of revolutionary, revolutionary socialist organising. There's not a sense of, of building that in, internal community such that you do get that ecstatic release. And as, as a result, there's no witness. And I think that's why what we tend to see in a lot of forms of contemporary political apocalypticism is like waves, right? Like there was a wave around 08. There was a bit of a wave again, maybe more of a ripple, but a sort of wave around 16, like I said at the time. Um, it, it tends to build and break. It doesn't sustain itself over time, right? Um, 
And I think that's because there's not witness. Witness, okay, so there's a huge amount written on this in theology. It was explained to me by an Anglican priest, and I like this, so if it's not quite right, but like, this is what I like, as living in such a way as to provide proof that Christianity is practical. Which is to say that if you're a Christian, your sort of witness, as it were, is to live, you know, according to the the ethics of this system, to participate in its rituals and so on, and just simply by getting on with your life, show that it works, you know, show that it makes people happy. And it's one of the things religious proselytizers always sort of tell people when they're trying to make converts, is, you know, talk about what's good about your life. Talk about, like, what Christianity does for you. Talk about um, how sort of happy you feel. Talk about the psychologically positive effects of joining this group. And also just demonstrate it. Be like a happy, chill person. It's, um, it is one of the things, you know, people train to be sort of missionaries, and it's one of the things they teach people is, like, be happy, be friendly, be easygoing, because you're kind of the sample product, if it were. People are sort of looking at you. And if you're, like, miserable, or, like, your life isn't working out for you, they're going to think, well, wait, why do I want to join this guy's group when it's clearly not working for him? Now, that, some might say that's a very cynical read of what Christian Witness is. It probably is. There's more to it than that, right? Um, but it does have that social function. You want, to, you want to demonstrate to people that this works, and that's not even knocking it necessarily, you know? Like, that makes sense. Um... There's, there's no, because you haven't got, it's not delivering spiritual freedom, you've not got, there's not the, really the capacity to, to build witness. Someone said to me once, and it, it sounds mean, it is mean, um, but I was sort of making the case for sort of socialism. I mean, my version of socialism is perhaps a little bit softer than the apocalyptic revolutionary version of socialism I've been talking about. But nonetheless, I agree with them on many sorts of policy issues. Someone sort of said, it doesn't seem to be making them very happy, does it? <laughs> and like, it doesn't. I'm just being real, it doesn't, does it? Like, if you look at Rose Twitter... Rose Twitter, by the way, is is just a sort of term for, like, socialist Twitter. And you were sort of to rate each tweet from, like, whether the vibes it was giving you were very happy or very unhappy. Um, it would definitely average a pretty low score on happiness, right? Now, what they will say, you know what people would say to that. They say, but how can we be happy when the world is so, so unjust? when we're under this monstrous system, and people are dying for lack of healthcare, when, you know, blah, 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 right? Which is exactly what you'd sort of expect them to say, given their experience of the world, and given that they've accepted apocalypticism as a way of processing that, right? Not everyone who has status dissonance processes it that way, but for those who do, but which is to say that um, they, they have a less their ideological project is less sophisticated, and as a result, um, 
less successful. And I really don't think, like, like technology we sort of see as linearly improving over time, and the world today is more advanced than the world in the past. Uh, maybe that's not even true for technology, but it's certainly not true for political ideologies. Just because they're more modern doesn't mean they're more sophisticated. Um, the, the liberalism of the late 1800s, early 1900s was more sophisticated and more successful than contemporary liberalism. Um, the apocalypticism of the first Christians um, definitely is a more sophisticated project than the types of po secular apocalypticism that we see in the modern world. Um, and it was successful because it offered spiritual freedom, and as a result, it was able to to um, to, to to show to witness, right? Um, it was able to sort of secure itself and grow over time, rather than just waves, right? Now, with that said, um, if I don't see, unless something changes, I don't see contemporary secular left-wing apocalypticism as doing a Christianity anytime soon. I don't see it going from something on the fringe to in the centre, right? Because it has those sort of structural deficits. Um, at the same time, I don't see it going away either, you know. Um, there's a lot of sort of thesis around this. People talk about, like, the overproduction of elites and stuff like that. Um, I, I've explained sort of my account here. But, you know, status dissonance isn't going away anytime soon, is it? So there'll always be an audience of people who are sort of susceptible, um, who are predisposed to think that this makes sense. Um, and if you want an interesting thought experiment to close with, um, you could ask yourself this. Just as a sort of intellectual game, what could a modern, secular, left-wing movement do to deliver spiritual freedom and witness? I have absolutely no idea, but I'll leave that one with you. 